I will say uh, for the first time, which is really exciting, is we are really focused on more big snows. We, we have a fully funded project for multiple snow domes out of the gate. The last 20 years, people talk about how crazy the ski industry has been or the consolidation or different past products. And if people don't see that the next 10 years is going to be the wildest ride, ski pioneering is not done. You know, there's a lot of people in consolidation and trying to fight over the piece of the pie. But we can make the pie a lot bigger. We can make a lot more pies. And I, I think we can do something that the founders of this industry would be proud of. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, bringing you one of the most original voices in the ski industry today. Before we get to that, please visit stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. If you found the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or somewhere else, welcome. Thank you for checking it out. I really appreciate it. But this podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this operation is the Storm Skiing email newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift served skiing all year long. Ski news doesn't stop for the summer, so neither do I. Next Tuesday, June 21st, I will be breaking down eight new Indy Pass partners, five downhill and three cross country, so you will want to get in on that. For even more frequent updates, you can follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, let's talk about my partner, Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Mountain Gazette 197 is now shipping to subscribers, featuring an iconic cover shot by Academy Award winner Jimmy Chin. Mountain Gazette 197 is the biggest issue of the magazine ever at 140 pages. Inside, you'll find John Fahey's true crime Aspen Outlaw story decades in the making, Ari Schneider's carefully reported piece on the fraught world of outdoor social media influencers, former bike editor Joe Parkin's love letter to two wheels, backcountry clashes in Teton National Park, stunning art and photography, and there's even a tear-out poster. The biggest issue of the biggest outdoor magazine ever. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 91, Joe Hessian, CEO of Snow Partners. Skiing doesn't change fast, and it doesn't change often. When the high-speed chairlift arrived in the early 80s, that changed skiing. When shaped skis arrived in the mid-90s, that changed skiing. And when the Epic Pass bundled resorts, cut the cost of a pass, and shifted the sales season to spring, that changed skiing. All of those things combined may not change skiing as much as the next big revolution. And that is something that's already been a staple throughout much of the world for decades. Indoor skiing. Why? After decades of mostly static participation, ski domes have the potential to introduce millions of people to the sport who otherwise never would have had the chance to try it. 
I'm talking about the millions of Americans living in Texas, Florida, Georgia, and the other 10 U.S. states with zero ski areas that have no outdoor skiing and probably never will. There are a couple of companies that see this potential. One is Alpine X, and I hosted that company CEO, John Emery, on this podcast last year. The other is Big Snow, which already operates America's only snow dome in New Jersey. Big Snow is owned by Snow Partners, a company founded by Joe Hessian, who entered the ski industry by parking cars at Mountain Creek at age 14. He's 41 now, and he is one of the most original thinkers in the industry. This is the longest podcast I've ever done. But trust me, when you get Joe on the phone, you don't hang up until he's done talking. Let's go. My guest today is the founder and CEO of Snow Partners, whose mission is to grow the ski and snowboard industry. Snow Partners owns and operates Mountain Creek and the Big Snow indoor ski areas, both in New Jersey. Mountain Creek features 46 trails served by nine lifts on a 1,040-foot vertical drop. Big Snow is North America's first indoor real snow ski and snowboard facility. Snow Partners also pioneered the terrain-based learning program that has been implemented at more than 50 ski resorts worldwide and developed SnowCloud all-in-one resort management software. He has spent more than 25 years in the ski industry, starting as a parking lot attendant at Mountain Creek, which was then known as Vernon Valley Great Gorge. Joe Hessian is my guest. Joe, welcome to the storm. So glad we could finally connect. How are you doing today? Great, Stuart. Thanks for having me. And I'm I'm really excited to be in the storm. I'm a big fan of the podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate you saying that, Joe. Thank you very much. And I want to start with a huge congratulations to you and your wife, Haley O'Brien, for those of you who don't know. And you guys are expecting, when uh, when is the addition coming? Yeah, so, you know, Hallie and I um, are, are, we have one child already, Miles, he's two and a half years old, and uh, we're expecting now our second and third child, mm. because Hallie is wow. uh, with identical twin boys. Wow. Um, so we'll have three uh, crazy boys uh, to be dragging around ski resorts all over the country soon. Um, <laughs> and uh, they, she, she's due August 15th, but with twins, especially identical twins, uh, you know, we're looking for early to mid-July is what they're saying at this point. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. Where did Miles make his first turns? Um, first turns ever for Miles were, were it, was at Mountain Creek. Nice. Um, uh, if not in in our house, right? Because we're we're a big fan of the Riglet program. We've been involved with that with Burton forever. So, um, you know, talk about a lucky kid. When when he was born, we got he, he received like three or four snowboards in the mail as gifts upon his birth. <laughs> so um, he, he's actually slept with a Riglet board under his crib since the, uh, the day he moved into his crib. So, um, so we've been pulling him around the house since he was ten months old, and then uh, just under a year, we we started pulling him around the base of Mountain Creek and. So far, he's been to Killington, Loon, Mountain Creek, Aspen, uh, Buttermilk and Snowmass, um, and Big Snow, of course. Well, he has had uh, probably a better ski resume than some people listening. Did, uh, did you say he snowboards already? You put him right on the board? Right on the board. Because of the riglet um, uh, kind of program, like that little board that you pull around from, from behind, it's just so intuitive. And they have this little handlebar where literally when he was learning to walk, we could get him 
sliding sideways around the around the living room. And are you and Hallie both boarders as well? Well, Hallie is, and you know, being she does so much work with Ski Magazine, people usually don't know that. But she, she's uh, basically exclusively a snowboarder. Ken, Ken ski. Um, I'm a lifelong skier and snowboarder. I, I do both. I started skiing when I was three, snowboarding when I was eight, um, and then something I've gotten into last few years, which is literally kind of been game changing for me, is uh, split boarding. So I, I love to to go up uh, Mountain Creek. I did 20 times this winter, just hanging up with a split board and then snowboarding down. What, what is you know? I don't get out to Mountain Creek during the week. What is the uphill scene like there? What route do you take? So it's, it's a great question. So the uphill scene here is, you know, I think it's a struggle a lot of resorts have. And, and Hallie and I used to live in Boulder and we used to go up to Arapahoe Basin and it was kind of a cool time to be there where their uphill pass kind of uh, program was starting. And and I remember I'd go and there'd be, you know, a hundred people there. Now I, I, I think I hear there's thousands of people there. Um, and so when I came back to Mountain Creek, there was this underground not a loud circuit of, of people up going uphill. Um, and it was mostly the crew from Burton Snowboards who all, like the Mid-Atlantic region, live around Mountain Creek. And now the scene is, you know, this winter there was probably 15 to 20 of us every Wednesday morning and Saturday morning, um, upwards of 40 people on some days. And what we do is we, we go on the Vernon side. So either up Garden State, um, if we have a bunch of newbies who have never done it before, we'll go up Horizon because it's a really nice climb, not as steep, or the backside is actually one of the best uh, alpine tours you can do here. Oh, that's really nice. So is that something that's explicitly allowed? I don't know if you have it, anything published online about uphill routes, or or is it just kind of, if you're in the know, you meet at this place this time? Yeah, I'd hate to say that we have this underground club, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, we've struggled with, you know, how do we police this? How do we control it? Um, because we have night skiing, we end up grooming pretty early into the morning. Um, so we don't have that swing shift that a lot of resorts have that close, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, we close it over at nine o'clock. So, you know, we, we've kind of had these concerns on, you know, what do we do with, with machines on the hill and how do we control that? So I think we've come up with a plan that we want to, you know, it, it's a passion of mine that if I love sharing the sport and it's something that like, I've fallen in love with the mountain in many different ways. We've had a very long relationship, not just this mountain, many mountains. And this year for me, going uphill with a split board was literally game changing. So um, I want to share that with as many people as possible. So we don't have anything yet, but I, I would say by next winter, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say it here. I'm going to make sure we get that done. We, we need to get an uh, uphill policy, um, which is huge out West and people like scoff at it. You know, they're like, Oh, mountain Creek, go uphill. What's that mean? But you know, for the people listening to this podcast who are out West, you know, where I used to live in Colorado, you know, people aren't going up the full mountain. They, you know, a thousand feet of vertical is a, is, a, is a reparable start of the day, especially if you're doing a few days a week. And, and Mountain Creek delivers on that. And it's uh, there's nothing better than being up there to start the day on a crisp morning, especially if snowmaking's in your face. It makes it all, all so much better. Yeah, well, that's really exciting, Joe. I and you know, you and I were talking before we started. I hiked Mountain Creek a couple summers ago, and my hotel was right at the base of Sugar Slope, and I was hiking up, and I'm like oh my God, this is a green run. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe what a workout it was just to walk up. Yeah. And, and sugar is probably a little uh, steeper than it should be for, uh, for our, our beginner hill. It's one of the issues uh, yeah. we've always tried to figure out in Mountain Creek. And that's why, you know, starting train base here was so important for us. But, you know, what I love about Mountain Creek is when you're up here, uh, most people don't realize that this is what New Jersey looks like. It's, it's actually a beautiful place. It's the garden state. 
the Appalachian Trail runs through the town. Uh, one of the most hiked sections of the Appalachian Trail, which is like these uh, rocks that go up the stairway to heaven, um, are, it's just a beautiful place. And to, to get to take people here, especially my friends from Colorado who have this preconceived notion, you know, they, they either grew up in Colorado or California or, or Ohio, then moved to Colorado. And, and when they come out to Mountain Creek, you know, they have this thought of, oh, I'm going to New Jersey. What's this going to be like? And um, it's so great to under promise and over deliver. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm very proud of the New Jersey brand. I think it keeps us fresh and it keeps us, you know, we have the greatest uh, guests in the world in the New York, New Jersey area. And, you know, if you don't believe that, just watch any sports athlete, you know, a quarterback for the Giants will tell you, you know, it's not easy playing in this in this market. But, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, Joe, I've I've skied Mountain Creek a long time. It's my home mountain. And the changes are palpable over the last few years. I think you and your team have done a great job. And I do want to get into Mountain Creek really deep later on. First, though, let's let's shift our focus to Big Snow, because I really want to congratulate you here on reopening that facility after the fire that happened in October, how does it feel to have your indoor facility operating again? It, it, it feels amazing. It's, it, it feels amazing. It's, um, you know, there's an energy at Big Snow. For, so for, for those people who haven't been there, um, there's an energy when you're in the facility, when you see people sliding out. So in winter or summer, right now it's a little trippy when it's 90 degrees out and you're in there and it's, <laughs> it's 28 degrees. You know, most one of the, the, fu- the funniest thing that happens, people always get a few things wrong with Big Snow. One is... You must be busier in the winter or in the summer than you are in the winter. It's actually busier in the winter than the summer. Huh, two, okay. it, two, it must be icy in there. Because it's never icy. The snow is always the same. And the third, which unfortunately we sell a lot of jackets because of this, they just assume because it's because it's going to be like springtime skiing, but it's really not. There's no wind, but it's 28 degrees and it's cold and it's winter. <laughs> And it's, it's hard to get yourself there. But once you're in there for a few runs, you're like, wow, this is really cold. I'm like, that's kind of the point. It's kind of what we do. <laughs> so let's, let's go back to the fire here. How did it start? Who found it? Just take us through that whole night. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take you through the night. So this was before Hallie was pregnant. So I, I don't, the whole time Hallie's pregnant, I don't drink with her. It's a little thing we do. So we both, uh, we, don't, we don't drink at all during that. So this is pre her being pregnant. It was last September. So it was eight months we were close, which is kind of mind-blowing to think about. Um, and we were actually at a wedding. So she, she was in the bridal party of a wedding. We go out. Um, we had a good time. And then, you know, I probably had a few too many vodka tonics. Um, um, and then, so then I wake up, you know, four in the morning to a ton of phone calls, like 50 missed calls. And it's kind of that moment where you're like, you know, this better be a fire. Um, which you know, maybe I wish I didn't say, cause I'm really, unfortunately it was a fire, but you know, no one was, hurt, which is all that actually matters. But, um, so what happened was early in the morning hours, um, last September, there was a fire in a heat trace. Um, so the, the big kind of, uh, roof structure on, on the dome, uh, has a heat trace in it. So it doesn't let snow pack in the winter, um, kind of build up on it. So the weight. So it melts the snow. So that was installed. You know, we the, we inherited the facility. Uh, we leased it in 2016. It was originally started construction in the two, early 2000s, right? So, um, so over this time, this was installed, I guess, 10 years prior to when the fire happened, nine and a half years prior. Um, and this heat trace lit a piece of the roof on fire and then basically then went down an expansion joint 
a rubber and kind of wood expansion joint that's that's kind of in the dome structure itself and really burned a section that you know for all intents and purposes is three to four feet wide you know 80 feet in length it's a really tiny fire you know the firemen did a great job you know we, we couldn't be more thankful for the amazing first responders that we have in in the Meadowlands and who came that day and, and really did a great job putting the fire out. And as far as the damage, no one was hurt, which, like I said, was the most important thing. No, no first responders were injured. It, everything went as planned as far as putting out the fire. Um, and the damage to the facility was, you know, when you think about how long we were closed, is really frustrating. It was almost nothing. It was smoke damage. Um, and this little expansion joint. And the biggest thing, which is why the delay was when the fire happened, the, the fire suppression system that's inside the dome. So just imagine, you know, you have to have a, a ski resort that has a fire suppression system over the whole top of it. When the fire happened in the roof, it triggered, it's a dry system. So it, it basically triggered it to fill with water. But because the fire was in the ceiling and never went underneath the heads, the heads never opened up. So the, the pipes filled with water, the waters are sitting, the, it's sitting at 28 degrees, the pipes then freeze. So we had a, a massive section of our fire suppression system that that was was now had to be removed and replaced. And so between the the smoke damage, the cleanup, uh, fixing that one piece, and then the the fire uh, suppression system, it was about six weeks of work. Now you're going to think to yourself, well, "What's he talking about? You were closed for eight months. How's it six weeks of work? Uh, maybe you know we'll be generous. We'll say it's two months of work, but." The problem is, you know, we're a tenant, so it's just like a store in the mall. Just imagine instead of Macy's or Saks Fifth Avenue, we're, we're, a, we're Big Snow, we're a, a resort, you know, a snow dome inside a mall. And we have a landlord and the fire happened in the landlord's space. And it was caused by a heat trace that was installed by a, a contractor who had insurance. And then we have our insurance on our side. So you take three insurance companies and you hit them with uh, the reality to fix this pipe. So, you know, the pipe was probably seven and a half million dollars to, to fix. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a case study and we, and, you know, scary management magazine did a really good job tell, telling the story of this. And, you know, if you, if you're, you know, if you're a resort operator, you know, we know this, we have really big insurance policies you have, you know, or if you have homeowner insurance, when you have a loss, you hope that, okay, I pay for insurance. I have all this really good insurance in case this happens. But the reality is when it comes down to writing kind of the big checks, insurance companies come up with all the reasons of why they don't want to. And maybe that insurance company, and if you get three insurance companies who can point fingers at each other, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty maddening. To be honest, it was, uh, it was really frustrating because, you know, we love to be open. We love to live our mission. We love to employ people. We love to have guests come and, and have a great time. And to sit idle is just not in our nature. It's just not what we do. Obviously, we're in the movement business of movement. And to have it just sit there was really frustrating. But we finally, um, we finally got it done. We, we kind of manifested our, our opening. At, at one point, it got to a point where we got so frustrated, we just got all the insurance people in a room and told them that we we're going to open on Memorial Day. You know, they had no choice. <laughs> and it ends up that they just needed someone to tell them the date because then they start at first they hemmed and hawed and said this wouldn't happen, but they didn't. And, and I, I just want to point out, because I know a lot of people in the industry uh, listen to this. I, I, by no means do I want to make a dig at, at our insurance company. We, we have a great insurance company, Mountain Guard. They insure a ton of ski resorts. We had our, we had all of our different policies with them. It's, it's really not their fault. They, they were great during the whole process and they really helped us and they did everything they could do. And everyone from that side was there. But a claim like this, 
when you're getting, you know, what I was talking about, the sprinkler pipe was seven million. So all in, this is probably a twenty plus million dollar claim. Jeez. When when that goes in, you get the parent companies and AIG, and you know, you know, it. You get all these big companies fighting over who's going to pay the bill, and 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 they have one strategy. They they don't want to. So you have to have an advocate. You have to hire your own counsel. You have to put pressure. You have to have forensic accountants. And long story short, we got it done. It took way longer than it should have. Not not on our fault, but really, you know, just unfortunately the process that that insurance has to go through to, to get it open. But but that's past us. Uh, you know, we've you know Hugh Reynolds, our, our chief marketing officer, when we opened in 2019, he, he had a, a funny idea to put for like the banner of the opening chairlift: first, last, first chair, because we were. We never close, and little did Hugh know it was like the curse of the great Bambino. He, um, <laughs> we would have COVID a few months later, and then a fire. Uh, for so, so this time we opened with no banner. We're trying to <laughs> break the curse, and you know, I, I think uh, all systems go here. Everything within our environment, Big Snow is doing great. The energy is great. It's got an amazing team there. It creates a lot of smiles and happiness, and and we're really honored to be able to. Uh, to offer that business to uh, our team and our, our guests. Gosh, Joe, I can't imagine how frustrating this all is. And I actually, I wrote an article when the fire broke out that I called the curse of big snow. And I went all the way back to the groundbreaking and the thousands and thousands of days until you opened on December 5th, 2019. The center was open for 94 days before COVID shut you down for 177 days. You reopened on September 1st, 2020 spun the lifts for 388 days, and then the fire closed the facility on September 25th of last year. It was a 244-day closure by my calculation, reopened till May 27th. I mean, you want to operate ski areas, not negotiate with insurers, right? How do you, how do you deal with that frustration? How do you stay positive? How do you move past it and say, you know what? This is a pain in the ass. This is not what I signed up for, but I'm going to do this. We're going to make this work. Uh, we are going to provide this experience where no one else has, despite all the obstacles that have come up since the day that ground was broken on the facility in New Jersey. How do you keep your spirits up and how do you keep going through all these frustrations? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. And, and you know, if you, if you were part of our team and, and, and kind of knew kind of how we operate, you know, what's, what's interesting about all the setbacks you know, we didn't even recognize them as major setbacks as they were happening from internally, right? We knew we weren't open. We knew we had to get open, but we've never lost faith in this business. Um, you know, the, cur- the curse of, of Big Snow is, 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 is interesting um, <laughs> because, you know, listen, the, the property itself has a really complicated past. And, you know, like a lot of things in, in our business, if it weren't for the, we love businesses that had complicated past because, a guy that started in the parking lot doesn't end up owning these businesses if they were successful out of the gate. Right. So um, I couldn't be more thankful for um, the mall's issues in the past because I wouldn't be sitting in the driver's seat if, if that didn't happen. But with that said, you know, what, what keeps us going and, and kind of what wants us to be here is we believe so much in the business model. We believe so much in what the facility does and, you know, getting it open, we knew, that if we could bring this type of experience of skiing and snowboarding and getting people who've never done it, getting a completely different type of, of guest base um, from demographics of all over the world. Like what, one of the things that I, I'm most proud of being from New Jersey is the diversity 
that, that, that we have here, right? So we have absolutely amazing culture, diversity, people from all different parts of the world speaking all different types of languages and religious backgrounds. And, um, such, such an amazing place. And the thought of having a, a facility that we could open there and, and, you know, prior to us getting involved with Big Snow, we had actually, one of the reasons I quit my job in, back in 2012 was, you know, Hallie, myself, we had this dream of opening up a, a learn to kind of scary in Central Park. And we actually went as far as leasing a piece of Central Park and then just had to get another approval from the Central Park Conservancy, which is actually really hard to do. Um, but in that quest of wanting to bring skiing and snowboarding to the people, all of a sudden, Big Snow kind of like entered the conversation kind of to us. And so when we thought about, okay, we could take this facility has been around for a while and we could actually be the ones to open it. That would be amazing. And then we did that. So then when COVID hit, obviously there, you know, the whole world closed. So we didn't feel like, you know, that was not quite on us. That was an, that was an our curse hitting us there. The fire, that, that one's, that one's tough. The, the fire one was tough. That one was definitely specific and, and every, every, the world was getting back to normal and, and we were kind of sitting there on the sidelines and that was frustrating. But when you see, when you see what we're able to deliver at Big Snow and the energy it creates and the team that we've hired and, you know, people who are teaching snowboarding or skiing who never even skied or snowboard, you know, 18 months prior to them teaching it and then them taking trips up to Killington or out West or, or going and all of a sudden seeing like, you know, I'm now part of this community. Like we're creating a, a ski town culture in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, which when you see the power of what that actually looks and feels like, you know, there was never a moment that we doubted we wouldn't get back open. And, you know, from, you know, you'll, you'll find with me, I, I, I we, we really are focused on humans first. And, and a lot of people say that, and, you know, you know, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to say, but our, our mission statement uh, at our companies is to enhance the lives of our team first, guests second, and partners by building lasting connections. And, and the ability that Big Snow does to allow us to hit all of those things of our mission is absolutely amazing. And what makes that all sustainable is, you know, we have to have happy team, happy guest. Big Snow has a rating on Google for a brand new business of over 4.6, which is, is just, it's just amazing to see that many happy guests. <laughs> like you can yeah. deliver so many happy guests. Um, the team is, uh, we just won most meaningful places to work in the United States, which is probably the thing I'm most proud of. And it financially does really well. So all of those things together, there was never a doubt we'd be back. It was super frustrating, but um, I'm proud to be back. Uh, the team's proud to be back. And uh, I think we got, I think we, I think we have a special recipe that, that we're, we're kind of working on. You know, when, when I saw the big snow facility going up, cause I've lived in New York city for 20 years and I saw it rising over the Hudson. I was a little skeptical because there's a lot of ski areas in the region and, and I wasn't sure what a, a small indoor facility would add. I started to get really interested when I understood your business model, which was what you just articulated, the focus on the learner, on inviting people in, on creating proximity to skiing to folks who may not have had it before. You could have gone a lot of ways with Big Snow. It could have been a park area. It could have just been, you know, you could have tried to attract skiers in the summer who couldn't get their turns in. Otherwise, how did you arrive at the business model that you did, which I think is terrific? Not only 
for a lot of reasons. One, the cost. It, it, it's just amazingly affordable. I think it's 70 to $90 for everything. Uh, skis, uh, coat, <laughs> uh, lessons, access to the train-based learning area. And you're right, as you said, in New Jersey, it's easy to get to. It's affordable. You wrap everything into one. It, it's very organized. How did you arrive at this business model and this way of going it, which seems to be working out really well for you when you can have the lift spinning? Yeah, yeah. So, so we really came up with it because we, you know, we were kind of born uh, in this industry, and our company was started in 2012 with a passion of, you know, 85% of people who try skiing and snowboarding don't come back a second time. And, and my background is in Lean Six Sigma, so I'm a I'm a Lean Six Sigma black belt. I'm a process expert. Um, a lot of uh, you know the, the the great experiences that I've had in this industry is working with amazing teams at resorts all over the country and the world on projects, designing rental shops, learning areas, children's programs. And what's really cool is, you know, we started that business first. That's our snow operating business. And and that business, we got to go to all these different resorts and work on projects, and we still get to do that now. And and it's 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 really interesting to be able to see how the design of the guest experience would be and how it would flow. And then, and because we had the experience of Mountain Creek, we knew the core guest of Mountain Creek, right? So Mountain Creek's has an amazing ability to teach people to ski and snowboard. And there's just, you know, it, it's a, such a major piece of our business. So it was obvious to us that teaching people to ski and snowboard was going to be in our DNA to start. And if you look at the other piece of Mountain Creek, park is really important to us for a lot of reasons and affordability. And so a lot of our thoughts that we took to Big Snow come from three places. Our work with resorts around the world, our our deep experience at Mountain Creek, and then also looking at snow domes around the world and trying to figure out which ones are which for which people. So there's different types of snow domes. There's ego, government-driven snow domes. So they're the ones like in China, uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, Norway, where they're like 400,000 square feet. They don't make any business sense. You can't, you can't justify the capital to make that make sense. It, the amount of visits you would need to make a pencil is just mind blowing. I'm sorry, 400,000. Just contextualize how big is Big Snow compared to that? Yeah, Big Snow is 180,000 square feet. Okay. Um, so imagine like double Big Snow, like Ski Dubai is, is double of Big Snow. Mm-hmm. And you look at the price to do that and you go, you know what? You know, what, what's the thought? So we really did a lot of research on, let's look at all the snow domes in the world and which ones make sense, which ones don't make sense. We actually visited a bunch of them. We, we My brother visited one in Brazil that, that most people don't even know about that uh, barely has any skiing. It's mostly snow play and snow tubing. Okay. And we looked at all of them and said, okay, what what is it that, you know, how do we get people to want to come be part of this, come have this experience? What And what's the experience we can design from an entertainment factor? So, you know, I don't, I'll let you tell me how heady you want to get here because, you know, one of the foundations of, you know, it's kind of, and, and, it, and I'm really excited to be on your podcast because I think it's, it's a good blend of, I spend most of my time on kind of the inside baseball track okay. um, and we could talk like real nerdy stuff about <laughs> rental uh, queuing theory and all that type of stuff. And I feel like you've done a great job of taking the ski skiers and snowboarders fans mixed with industry people talking kind of kind of like the inside the ropes type thing so so i'd love to go down this road a little bit if you're cool that of when we started our company we hired a psychologist mm-hmm. who basically told us that fun you know we we found out that the reason most people don't come to skiing and snowboarding a second or third time is they didn't have fun 
So we didn't know what that, you know, it's easy to say that, but what is fun? And if you think of your first time skiing or snowboarding, most people say it wasn't fun. Right. So we hired the psychologist who works with the video game industry named Nicole Lazaro. And she, she was fantastic. And it was, um, it was actually Scary and Management Magazine. Olivia Rowan found her TED Talk and brought her to a, something that Snow Operating and Sam Magazine put on up at Jiminy Peak called Conversion Camp, which was all about how to get more skiers and snowboarders to come back a second and third time. And when we did that, we had Nicole come do the keynote and we found out she's from San Francisco. She's in the video game business. She never skied or snowboarded. So I asked if she'd want to learn. She said, sure. So I called up my friend, John Rice out at Sierra Tahoe and said, hey, I got this, uh, this woman. She's like a genius in the world of psychology of fun. And she wants to come snowboard at uh, Sierra. I told her ski or snowboard, she picked snowboard. And she's going to evaluate if snowboarding is fun or not. So she went up there and we actually sent our own coach from uh, Chris Hargrave, who worked with us at Snow Operating and still does, and worked a lot with Burn Snowboard and the Snowboard Academy. He went up and worked with her. We built some terrain-based learning for her. And at the end of it, she said, here's, here's the issue. Traditional learning, skiing and snowboarding, doesn't hit any of the main boxes of fun. So mm -hmm. there's four types of fun she taught us. There's easy fun, which is anybody can do it. It's simple. It, you're successful right out of the gate. So it's in the video game world, it's it's um, it's Mario Brothers, it's uh, it's uh, Pong, it's all those simple things. Then there's hard fun, which is really, you know, it's hard. It takes a lot of skill. You have to work yourself up to it and you have to figure out how to get good at it. That's playing the guitar. That's uh, a more complicated video game like Call of Duty or something like that. The Jack have some skill and understand how it works. And then there's people fun, which is people together socializing. Then there's life-changing fun, which is kind of like you're in flow and you have this moment. So what she kind of taught us was skiing is missing the easy fun. It only has hard fun. So the people who succeed have to be crazy enough to just get beat up over and over again and <laughs> right. kind of rise above that and wear that as a badge of honor. So that's why you have such conversion issues. And she basically told us in the video game world, like, amazingly like they have figured out how they have to make games that are hard fun because only things that are hard fun can be a lifestyle and only things that are easy fun easy fun are never a lifestyle so you know the example that we always use uh, with our resort partners is if someone goes skiing and snowboarding at your resort they might go back to a store a ski shop snowboard shop in their town and say hey do you sell snowboard jackets because i'm a snowboarder i'm a skier but if someone goes snow tubing at Mount <laughs> and goes back to Paragon in New York, they're not going to say, do you have snow tubing, Jack? Right. Because snow tubing is easy, fun. Skiing and snowboarding is hard fun. So in the world of video games, they basically, with Nicole's leadership in this, is they basically made video games that if you've never played it, it starts out really simple and then builds as you go. So the whole concept of, of TBL and us working with our resort partners was, Let's get instructors and the train and the groomers and snowmakers and the resort leadership all looking at the psychology of how people have fun and experience. So let me take this back to your original question. So when coming up with how did we come up with the business model for Big Snow, our business model was how can we deliver? Like one of the things that I, I love and, and get frustrated about is snow tubing is growing and resort operators love to say like, Oh my God, Camelback's doing 180,000 snow tubing visits, which, which is great. It's a great ancillary business and it's great. But like I said, it's not a lifestyle. So like, you know, I, I don't wake up in the morning to open up a tubing hill. It's just not, right. no offense to people. Like if, if, they, if that's what blows your hair back, if, if, if it's all about the money, like that's great for me. I truly believe and, you know, to the point that it's become my life work that sliding on snow 
mm-hmm. can be a life-changing situation. It can change the way you travel with your family, travel with your friends, have moments uh, with yourself. Like it's such an amazing thing. So the more you can get people to get, have that gift of of taking a vacation up in Vermont or out west or or any of these spots, like that's one of the things I'm so proud of at Mount Creek is we're the gateway to a lifetime of these really tangible experiences, life experiences. And so for us, for the business model, it was obvious to us that we had to create easy fun where I could take someone from the mall with flip flops and uh, shorts on. And for 50 to 80 bucks, get them everything they need to have. And then most importantly, have them leave smiling and thinking that was awesome. I want to do it again. And it takes a lot of shift in how to deliver that, that, that experience. So, so that's always been, that, that's been our, our core since we started. And it's, it's been fun to deliver and, and continue to try to get better at. It is such a fascinating model. And I, I, the, the piece of it, that to me is so crucial is having that learning area with the on-demand instructors, because the, let's be realistic, the price point of instruction at most ski areas is going to be prohibitive or unattractive at the very least to a beginner skier who's just trying it for the first time. So by folding it in, I think you've really unlocked something there. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll be honest where that came from. You know, we were working with resorts all over the place and, you know, I, I used to, I used to say all the time that you can't, it was one of the things I was most wrong. I gave keynote speeches and I really made this one of the headline things I said, and I was so wrong. I would say you're never going to have, you can't have lesson times because you can't have lesson times. Cause we used to, we do this thing. It was really interesting. We'd go to our resort partners and when they hire our company, the first thing we do is we just follow a beginner from the parking lot into through the lesson like into the all the way through the lesson so imagine you're at a resort and and some listeners here might be like oh my god maybe this happened to me but say you're at a resort someone from snow operating would be standing there at the front and they say okay this person looks like they're potentially a beginner and they watch where they go so what's their first step do they go to retail do they go to rentals do they go to a ticket booth like what's the flow and then we track everything they do and how long it takes and then as we do that we actually watch everything they do. And then they, after they get through rentals, they then go through, hopefully, into their lesson. And what happens a lot at ski resorts, and this is, you know, ski resorts were, were developed haphazardly, right? Like, it's kind of like, you know, I always tell the story of like, you know, someone was like, hey, let's, uh, let's slide down this hill. Uh, let's, let's make a rope tow. Cool. Okay, well, if we, if we got a lift, we could probably have more fun, but we probably need people to pay us for it. Okay, let's do that. And then it was kind of like, well, some people don't have stuff. Well, let's get, get some stuff for them to borrow. Okay, we'll rent it to them. And well, some people don't know how to do it. Let's 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 hire some people to teach. And it's like the ski resort wasn't thought about, you know, as one big unit, right? So so what happens is because we were siloed in in our evolution of becoming the modern day ski resort. When you go to resorts, you see these silos do very silly things because the process isn't connected. So you see someone leave. So I, I once followed a group through a rental shop. I won't mention the resort. They're, they're great partners of us. But, and this was many years ago when we worked with them. But I, I followed this group through the rental shop. And it was early in the morning. And you could see their excitement arriving to the resort. They're excited. They get to the rental shop. They see the line. You can kind of have the moment, oh, there's a line, but they, they wrap their head around it. They get through rentals probably in, you know, 40 minutes from parking lot out. And then they go to the base area, you know, struggling to carry their stuff as, as you would imagine a beginner coming out of a rental shop does. And then all of a sudden they get to the base area and the person at the instructor says, yeah, let, 
you missed the, the lesson. The next one starts at 12. Now it's an hour and a half away. And most resorts, unfortunately, um, a lot of them have changed this. But when we started out, most resorts do this. And so now my job is to see what they do. So they went to the bar um, and they originally went to get breakfast, but then they ended up in the bar to get breakfast. <laughs> then they started having a drink. Then they were doing shots. My, my watching them ended like four hours later. I literally went back to the resort general manager and said, listen, here, my, my review, one of the groups I followed today never skied. They just got super drunk. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's, if that's good or bad. They'll probably come back. They seem to be having a great time. Um, but it goes to show you that, you know, the fact that I used to go up and say all the time, you can't have lesson times because it completely derails your design process. And it was Big Snow that really changed my mind on that because Big Snow has a capacity of 500 people at one time. So you can't have the traditional model of everyone show up at once. So there, what we did was we had arrival times on the whole experience. So you can only go to Big Snow at certain times. So it's, it's every 15 minutes, we let 60 people in the door. And then, then we have the gondolas in the front. Each one of those gondolas can handle 20 people per gondola every five minutes. And then everything from our outfitting, our outfitting of our clothing to um, the restrooms to how to get your, ba- your, your boots put on to the lockers are all planned to have 60 people every 15 minutes flow through. And because of that, the lesson experience then is completely matched to make those two happen. So your rental experience and your arrival experience has to completely match your lesson experience. And it was really the capacity constraints of Big Snow is what pushed us to, to look at it that way. And now at Mountain Creek, we actually, and this is where I, I had to eat my words, we have arrival times for the rental shop. I used to say all the time, you'll never, you would never have arrival times or session times for your rental shop. So how could you have them for your lesson? Where I was dead wrong was you should have arrival times for your rental shop because a rental shop can only process so many people per hour or per 15 minutes or per five minutes. So it, the resort kind of has the obligation to only sell what they can actually process because otherwise you have big lines. So this year at Mountain Creek, we, we, we did over 2,500 rentals on our peak days and we had wow. no line. And wow. when I say no line, like people said, oh yeah, we know we get people through 20 minutes. And I'm not saying any of that BS. I'm saying like literally no line because, and, and what's interesting is if you, sh- and we have night skiing, so it's a little easier for us to spread it out. But if you showed up at, at 8.30 to 9, we sold 125 rentals. From 9 to 9.30, we sold 125 rentals. From 3.45 to 4 in the afternoon, we, we sold 125 rentals. So it never backs up. So you have a model that works. You've obviously thought about it, are open-minded, continue to tweak it. It seems to me like this is something that you could replicate. Like you could have a franchise of big snow ski domes around the country, I think, Probably the the biggest problem I can think of is capital. They're expensive, right? That's the reason we only have one in the United States at present, probably one of the reasons. So I, years ago, after the facility in New Jersey opened, there were some allusions in some interviews with you and others that there could be potentially a big snow facility in Miami. Have you thought any more about additional big snows? And And if so, is there a timeline or a or any details you could give us about this? Yeah, so so great question, and and you know I, I'm excited to to be transparent with you. So you know people know me. I'm I'm usually 
you know, pretty cagey until I'm very confident something's going to happen. You know, I talk in, in the kind of the, the groups that I'm close with about our ideas and we're, and we, we, we're very big on NDAs and making sure that we, uh, we're clear on what our intentions are. So I will say uh, for the first time, which is really exciting, is we are really focused on more big snows. Big snows are, if you look at snow partners 10 years down the road, you're going to think of us for two things. So the people that know snow partners are going to be, okay, this, this group is behind the technology that changed the way all ski resorts operate and skiers uh, access resorts. And uh, we talk about that later. And the second is they brought snow domes to the United States in in a, in a very interesting, different way. And and we've gone as far as we have an amazing uh, amazing capital partner. We we have a fully funded project, which is fantastic for for multiple snow domes out of out of the gate. Essentially, so we have a great capital partner who really you know it was interesting is that they're the partner that we've been working with to look at other opportunities. And it really kind of came down to a really great relationship, working on other projects and looking at other things, and then really diving into the business model of Big Snow and realizing that Big Snow is an amazing business. It, it does really well financially, because if you think of the infrastructure, it, it only has one very small fixed grip chairlift. It only has um, one snowcat. So it's like two magic carpets. And when you think about what it costs to operate a snow dome, it's, it's, it's a really great business model. So the EBITDA percentage is, is great, is much greater than, than a resort. So at Mountain Creek, you know, we struggle to get a 20, uh, 28 to 30% EBITDA. So, you know, our, our earnings before interest, uh, depreciation, amortization from, from revenue, uh, percentage, but then on the, on the, on the on the big snow side, we're closer to fifty percent. So wow. you sort of look and say, "Wow!" So if you can have an EBITDA of of that, it, it starts to become just a much more efficient business, which is which is awesome. And and don't get me wrong, it's taken a lot of work to figure that out. Like we've had to figure out how to get the right team, the right staffing, how we schedule people, how we do every little piece, but. Then, you know, kind of what happened from there is we reached out to, I've always idolized Topgolf. Our capital partner basically said, let me, let me reach out. They're very well connected, great group. Let me reach out to, um, to the CEO of Topgolf and, and ask them, you know, what, what they think of the idea. And they got us in touch with a, with a group that basically buys and, and figures out all the lands for, for them. And, and uh, you know, so right now I'm not mentioning some of these groups by name until, until they're ready to, but um so they've gone out, we've gone to demographic research on different locations of where future big snows would work for our guests and demographic that we're looking to do, knowing now that we have the experience and kind of the ingredients of, of the guest and, and experience we're trying to do. And then the, the, the last group that we connected with was a company called Arco Murray, who, who, who were, we can definitely talk about uh, by name. Arco Murray is the group that did all the Carvanas, uh, Top Golfs, iFlies. And what they do is they do specialized structures, you know, around the world, but mostly in North America that are made to be replicated. So replicatable. So if you think about like a Carvana, like very unique building, very different construction. And then there's many of them across the the country. So uh, Arco Murray would be the company to do that. So we entered into an agreement with all of these different groups. And this was a long time ago. This is probably a year ago. And then since then, we've been working, uh, we have a team on our team that literally works full time on future big snows. That's all, all, we, all we focus on. 
everything from our hiring processes, HR processes. So we're, we're really excited about the future of what the industry can look like. Imagine if every city, just like a top golf, could have, you know, basically the ability to slide on snow, go snow tubing, uh, experience real snow, ride a chairlift, have a uh, 8,000 square foot restaurant and bar that really brings the culture and liveliness of a resort town to every major city. So we could, you know, get people not only excited sliding on snow, because that's the, that's the piece, that's the tangible piece, but more of bring people into the lifestyle, show people what it's all about, and then be able to then hopefully get those people to want to travel to resorts all over either their, their, their neck of the woods or, or across the country. I mean, it could change the whole industry. It, if you look at the United States, a, a good percentage of the population, I don't know what percentage, lives in states like Texas or Florida where there's no snow, never has been, never will be. So if you grow up in Orlando or Houston or Atlanta, you don't have easy access to skiing. Now, you may be lucky and grow up in a ski family who takes a trip to Colorado every year, but probably not, and you'll probably never try it. But if there's an indoor facility nearby, it's basically like a Six Flags. Like you're going to go at some point and you're going to try it out. So the potential there, Joe, is just absolutely mind-blowingly enormous. If you look at some of these small European countries that have far more skier visits than the United States, which is much larger population-wise, I think that proximity really helps. So are there any cities that you can tell us that you will definitely build a big snow facility in? And if not, are there any that you can tell us that you're looking at? Yeah, so so the word definitely, like I said, I, I only like to say when we're 100%. So we have not formally purchased uh, any land to date. Um, right now, we're focusing solely on the con- construction and build cost down to uh, extreme details. So like I said, we've gone through every facility around the world. Uh, we've looked at, we, we have uh, designers that, that have been involved with those from around the world. Um, we inherited Big Snow. So we've learned a lot operating Big Snow. Like there's a lot of things we would do different. Not that I dislike Big Snow. I love it. But if I could do it from scratch, I would have done things a little, a few things a little different. So we're doing those things. And then working on the performance side, which was getting the underwriting from our capital side was a hurdle because that, you know, for us, we want to build this to scale. So when the question is, which cities are you focusing on first? You know, Texas is high, high on our list. There's some debate of which actual city within Texas, but um, we have one that we have a really good relationship with already, and there's a, a huge potential there. Definitely uh, looking at some things, you know, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, because of the relationship we have with current American Dream Mall, and obviously have the Mall of America, so, so, so you never know what, what we could do there. We've had some great conversations with them. We've looked at places like Denver, because it's near and dear to my heart, which, you know, people are like, well, why would you do it there? It's by the mountains. I, I you know, when you, when you understand the big snow model, you, you see that there's a lot of people live in Denver and in the surrounding areas who, who don't ski and snowboard. So I would imagine one of the outskirts like Centennial or something where Top Golf is would be a beautiful location. And, you know, for us, to be honest, when we're doing this and we're looking at this process, it's not, you know, here's our next one. It's more of how to produce the right location with the right kind of kind of capacity demographic of what we're looking for and also building it in a way that's scalable. So we're really focused on scale because we don't want to do like, you know, one other one of them. We want to, we want to get in a track record where, you know, I'm hoping we do this podcast again in another three years and you go, what city will you not be in? And then I'll struggle <laughs> to find out which one that is. What do you think 
the potential is for big snow. How many of these things do you think the United States could handle? And also on that note, Alpine X came out of nowhere last year, announced they were opening an indoor ski facility in Fairfax, Virginia. They are still working on all the approvals, construction, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess it's a two-part question. Is there room for a competitor? And what's the total addressable market in the United States for indoor ski areas? Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I think, um, so to, I'll answer the first question first is, as far as how many could there be, you know, if, if you look at the business model of what we're trying to kind of create and what we've created at Big Snow and how we're creating it, you know, I, th- I think it really is, you know, it's, it's hard to say limitless, but when you look at, we're not trying to be everything to everyone. We have a very specific model of how we function, how we operate. And I think there can be many of them. Now, now with that said, they're a little different than the current Big Snow. So they're not necessarily bigger. In some spots of the hill, they're smaller. In other spots, they're slightly bigger. But overall, including the restaurant, they're the same size, which Big Snow doesn't have a restaurant that we operate. So so it's slightly smaller overall compared to Big Snow if, if you take out the restaurant. So to us, we think they can go over, all over the place. As far as competition, you know, what's beautiful about the ski industry is, you know, we we, we have such healthy competition. Like we can, we can, we can disagree with how certain people go about the same process. And it's kind of like in the restaurant business, we're, we're all chefs. We all, we all love our food and, and there's some people who make amazing food and, and there's plenty of, of space to go around. I, I listened to, to your podcast with Alpine X and, and I've, I've read of some other stuff on them. I, I wish them well. I, I know some of the people on their team. We've actually met with them a few times in the last few months. They have a different model than, than we're going after. You know, we, we spend a lot of time, like, like I said, like I've, I've spent the last decade of my life. I've traveled to 137 resorts. I've done research on every indoor snow dome. I operate the one in big snow. And so for me, you know, we're, you know, I'm kind of nerdy down to the second detail of the planning of every piece of it. And it sounds like they have some really cool ideas that are, that are different out of the box, looking at it from a different angle, kind of uh, more of a bigger hotel, like our, our, our future big snows. We're not looking to be in the hotel business. We're looking to be in the entertainment, family entertainment business, which is skiing, snowboarding, snow tubing, birthday parties, really great app price ski experience and really good retail boot fitting, um, that type of thing. So as far as Alpine X is concerned, you know, I I wish them well. I hope that I hope they open 20 of them. I hope they open 100 of them. Um, And and down the road, I, I think there is room for for competitors, you know, at some point, it has to make sense for the market. And, and the hardest part will be is the capitalization to build them because what most people don't realize it's cheaper to buy ski resorts than it is to uh, build an indoor snow dome, even wow. uh, smaller than big snow. Wow. As you look at these future facilities, Joe, are you thinking about standalone facilities or attached? And the reason I asked this question is because the I love your business model and I love how you have organized big snow and the mission. The risk I see to it is that the American Dream Mall has struggled financially. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that the mall failed to make its semi-annual interest payment for an $800 million municipal bond. I probably don't have the full story there, but as you think about it, is it best to just detach from these larger entities and just have a standalone facility like a Walmart? Not not that I'm comparing you to that, but basically a parking lot and a building rather than being dependent upon the physical health of a larger entity. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and that's something that we've spent a lot of time about. And, you know, there, there's pros and cons to both, right? Like there's so many pros. And, you know, if you want, I could talk about, you know, the, the financial situation of American Dream is is uh, is something I'm, we're not involved with. And people ask me all the time, do you think Big Snow is going to survive that? Like, I, you know, you, you never want to say too big to fail. But when you look at the the different financing from JP Morgan to Goldman Sachs, who've put a ton of money into American Dream, you know, they're going to figure that out. They're going to reorganize that debt in some way. They're, that'll figure it out. The, the mall, if you've not been to American Dream, you know, it's a $4 billion mall in New Jersey. And, you know, to the listeners of this podcast, I usually, you know, give people a kind of a, you know, back on their heels when I say, yeah, it's the cost of four Whistler Black Homes um, for a mall, mall in New Jersey. So, um, so yeah, so they're, they're going to figure that out. I, I have faith that that, that will, that will, will figure itself out. But the press, to your point, the press of that, the complications of that, yeah, they certainly don't always serve us well. Where they do serve us well is it's really great to be part of, of a community like American Dream. Like, you know, sometimes these press stories come out and they're very sensational and they beat up the developer. And when you actually know them, like the Garmesian family is a family that I know really well. I know, I know the core founders. Um, I know their sons. I know their sons. And they, they run this massive business, really family oriented. And when you get to meet them and talk to them and see their vision, they're among the best in the world at, at doing what they do. The Mall of America, West Edmonton Mall. And American Dream, if, if you haven't seen it, it is really mind-blowing. Now, it comes with the great community, comes with great advertising, it comes with great being able to work everyone together. You know, the, all the different restaurants we have that we can we can leverage relationship with or brands is super cool. All of that's great. But to your question, could, could it be easier if we were separated? And, and I think depending on the market and depending on the relationship, I would imagine, you know, let's just throw out a hypothetical. If there was 10 big snows in the next five years, I would say maybe one or two of them are attached and the rest are not. And I do think the standalone model has a lot of really good benefits. There's nothing I love more than watching someone walk through the mall in full uh, ski gear. I think it's just, <laughs> it brings me joy every time I see it. Uh, it would be a lot easier if they were just walking directly on snow. So we recognize that, you know, the mall probably doesn't pull. It's probably not as beneficial for big snow to be uh, part of the mall, but to the it's an anchor store, right? So, you know, what's genius kind of about Triple Five and what they did is they created entertainment like they did in West Edmonds Mall and Mall of America as the anchor store. So when we were closed, the, the people that were, you know, obviously our team was upset that we were closed and I, you know, we, we struggled and I was really kind of not, you know, happy that we weren't open, but the people that I heard from the most were the stores that are around us in the mall. They're like, can you please open? Because when you're open, you know, the pizza guy, Best Pizza, which is that around the corner, is like, when are you going to open? Like I sell 10 times the pizza when Big Snow's open versus not. So, you know, there, there's something to be said about that, but I, I like I like your intuition there. Standalone is is probably a really big part of our future. It's so exciting to think about. I mean, you're describing basically an empire of indoor ski domes that could change the U.S. ski industry for the better and secure its future. I, I, I would equate this on a level of change with the introduction of the Epic Pass and, and this stabilization model that it brought to skiing by moving the uh, season pass sales period to the spring. So it took a snow-dependent industry and financially secured it. What you're doing is essentially 
if you can pull this off, creating a nationwide network of beginners that the ski industry either hasn't been able to figure out how to create or couldn't create if they tried. Because to your example about Denver, okay, great. You live close to the best skiing in the world. Are you going to go try skiing with a $200 lift ticket at Keystone? Absolutely not. Because then you still have to rent gear and get an instructor, or you could go to the snow dome down the street, not have to go into the mountains and deal with I-70 and pay 70 bucks to get that taste of it. And I think this truly could be transformative. But where I want to go with this is we're talking big and you didn't start big. You started, as I noted, as a parking lot attendant. This is one of the most amazing Charles Dickens stories in skiing. Joe, take us back to the beginning. Vernon Valley, Great Gorge in the 90s as a parking lot attendant. Tell us how you got that first job and just tell us the story of, of from there to creating snow operating. I mean, it's, it's an amazing journey. Yeah. And you know, it was an amazing journey and I met some amazing people along the way in 1994. I want to work my, my parents, my mom uh, worked in the food service industry, uh, industry. She was a waitress for a long time that eventually went to corporate food service. My dad was a drug and alcohol counselor, kind of like a social worker. So we grew up in the town, grew up skiing. I actually wasn't allowed to go to Vernon Valley, Great Gorge when I was a kid because it was too crazy. So I actually learned to ski <laughs> at Mount Peter, which is uh, down the street in Warwick, yep. And we, we spent all our time there. So when I was 14, my parents were like, you know, when you're, when you're 17, you're going to want to get a car and we're not going to buy you one. So you have to get a job. And I was excited to work. That was kind of in the culture of our family big time. So I got a job at 14. My mom knew someone at the local radio station. And so imagine the job market back then. We had, she had a call and a favor to get a 14-year-old a job, right? So right. she had a call and a favor. I, he, did, he hooked me up and got me a job in the parking lot. And you know, I'll, I'll give you a part of the story that, that mo- I don't really tell often, but it, it's important because it kind of talks about our company now and what it's all about is I didn't do well in school. So I struggled. I have dyslexia, uh, a little bit of OCD. If people are close to me, they, 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 they pick up on that pretty quickly. But um, what so in school, I had a really hard time and I got left back in second grade and kind of my whole childhood, it was kind of this moment of you know, you're just not good enough. You know, your, your grades aren't good. You need extra help. You need special education. So I, I, it really was not a fun experience to be in the box of, of the educational process. And I got this job in the parking lot and it was, it was pretty life-changing moment for me. And it's something that I don't take lightly now because I realize the impact that we might have on people's lives when they come. And that's why our mission statement is so, so important to us is, I came here and I started working in the parking lot and uh, a lot of my friends worked there with me. We had a great time. We laughed, we parked cars, we had funny little uh, ways we went going about it. And I did that for two seasons and we, we took a vacation with my family. The second year I worked at Action Park in the summer, which is a famous uh, water park. It's <laughs> well-documented in the HBO documentary I was in last year. So, um, uh, which is what I get asked about the most, which I cringe, but um I'm glad we didn't talk about action parks. Why did I bring it up? So um, (laughs) I went on vacation and then the guy who ran the parking lot was like, yeah, if you're on vacation, um, we're going to demote you for, because they made me a supervisor, which was a big deal. So then in 1996, I went to the job fair because I didn't want to work in the parking lot anymore. And I wanted to work in retail. And, you know, anyone who wants to work in retail at a ski resort when they're a 16 year old basically gets pushed to the rental shop. So they're like, oh, cute. You want to work in retail? You should go talk to rentals. And sitting at the table was a guy by the name of Frank DeBerry. Okay. 
and he's the rental manager at <laughs> at Vernon Valley Great Gorge. Amazing. And, and you're laughing because uh, I remember your podcast a few weeks ago. He's the the president of Crystal Mountain, was the president of Mountain Creek for a long time, and also social yep. Virginia. Yep. And I mean, that moment for me was probably one of the most impactful of, of my life. So through through this experience, there's a few moments where you go, wow, if that didn't happen, this wouldn't have happened. So I met Frank, started working for Frank. We hit it off right away. I was a young kid. He's 10 years older than me. So I guess I was 16. He was 26. And we just started working together and getting the rental shop open. And he was process driven. And he thought about the science of it and going back to in school, I was I was a kid that people were like, you're just not, you're not gonna write, you're just bad at school. And all of a sudden, like Frank made me feel like I was like this genius that understood how to do inventory when no, no one could do inventory and, and look at, oh, maybe we can change this in the forms process and X, Y, and Z. So it was a, it, I fell in love with the business of the ski industry at 16 years old because it provided me basically self-confidence, self-worth, the ability to want to be part of something. And Frank, Frank was a big piece of that. His leadership style and what he did really was, was impactful on me. And, and that happened, and we were doing such really cool stuff. And then IntraWest, so all of a sudden, the resort closes. And it was uh, because, you know, Vernon Valley, Great Gorge, and all that issue had, had uh, major issues with the owner at the time. And then they closed, and, and I, I kind of stepped away from the industry for, for a summer. And I just thought, you know, what's going to happen? My, I, I really like this. This, you know, I'll go to college and figure it out. But then all of a sudden, the next winter, this company, IntraWest, comes and buys the resort. And th- this is like one of the most amazing right place, right time. I'm just a very lucky person because, you know, basically you had this resort that's been around since the 60s. You've had a lot of old timers that have been involved here for a very, very long time. This new Canadian company comes in called IntraWest. They didn't want to conform to anything new. They didn't want to be part of what IntraWest was trying to get done. And I was a super young, impressionable person who had this great leader, Frank, who, who instantly was an up-and-comer. As soon as IntraWest uh, showed up, they, they saw the potential in him. And because a lot of other people, they just, they just like, because they weren't willing to, to kind of look at a new way of looking at things, just exiting themselves out and being young and freshly at this point out of high school, I, I just was able to really find a niche to, to, to grow within the organization. And I, I did everything from, I was the rental manager for Frank, I was the water park manager, I was the food and beverage uh, manager, then the food and beverage director, I ran the hotel I, I ran the train park program. I brought Mountain Creek South to, to Mountain Creek. Um, and all these great things happened. And IntraWest was this time of like growth. I, I listened to your podcast with Bill Rock. He was saying about the heyday of Intra, And he's great. I've known him since these days. And, you know, it, it's re- really amazing. Like, like IntraWest provided so much to their team. They were very people-driven. And then they're, they're the ones that actually trained me to be a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt. So I didn't go to college in, in the middle of that for a bit. And I went to SUNY Geneseo, I actually went up to upstate New York to work at a water park with Frank. I've chased him up to upstate New York. But as this all happening, like I kept going back to Mountain Creek. Mountain Creek was, it was, you know, I, I always say like, I have such a complicated relationship with Mountain Creek. It, it's, this is the place that I started as 14. I grew up in my most transform more transform years like the years that really meant the most to me growing up growing up and learning and really a sponge happened at this place with the people that you know not just the people from interest who had all these really interesting new ideas and i've heard you talk about you know the massive lift you know imagine all of a sudden just helicopters like you're 18 
and you're like, who's this new company? And it's just all summer, there's helicopters everywhere. And there's like right. lift towers going in. And you're like, what are they? This is wild. It's like uh, <laughs> every kid that has an older ski resort in their hometown wants, uh, you know, wanted this to happen. It was the greatest mm-hmm. thing that ever happened. And, and this was all going great. And my life was set. I was going to work for IntraWest. It was my dream. I, I would have got an IntraWest tattoo if, if I could have <laughs> in the mid-2000s. Um, they trained me to be a Lean Six Sigma black belt. I spent some time working corporately across IntraWest, working on efficiency projects and getting to travel to all the different resorts. And then, you know, the recession happened and they were really put into real estate and Fortress Capital bought them off the public stock exchange. And, and when that happened, it went from this company that, you know, Joe Hussein and Hugh Smythe and these you know, it's absolute legends created and became a company owned by Wall Street. And, you know, some people love publicly traded companies. Some people love uh, hedge funds. You know, we're talking about growing big, big snows. We, we need capital partners. But, you know, finding the right people like this was a company that bought IntraWest off the public market for a very specific purpose. It went right into a recession. Um, the way they ran their business, they cut the black belt program right away. They stopped caring about efficiency. They cut out as many things as they could. They were just basically trying to pump it to dump it type situation. They got themselves, they had to start getting their investment back. And when they did that, they looked at, you know, what were the assets that could sell quickest? So, you know, sometimes, and, and you know, I heard Frank talk about this, you know, sometimes like, well, you know, why didn't West sell Mount Creek? Did they lose faith in Mount Creek? The, the reason they sold Mount Creek is they had a buyer and they could make a quick transaction, right? So, you know, other other places they tried to sell and it was it was a real struggle to find a buyer at the time. Because remember, this is in the Great Recession, right? Like in the recovery, the you know, Mount Creek was sold in 2010 to Crystal Springs, which which is kind of was an interesting time. So Frank was the president of Mount Creek for IntraWest when IntraWest got sold to Crystal Springs. I was the director of mountain operations at the time. And I remember I was, I was taking a hike in the woods with Frank and he said, you know, I'm leaving with IntraWest. I'm staying with IntraWest and you you could be the next general manager here, chief operating officer. That's that's what you should do. You're the right person. And I think you just have to go and meet with them and it'll be a very different company. And, you know, you should try it out and see how it feels. You know, you're, you're very valuable to, to this business and, and to the community. And I think you should stay. So I, I stayed, I became the general manager at I think I was 29 years old, working for Crystal Springs, which Crystal Springs is the family, the Mobile Hill family, who started Action Park in Vernon Valley Great Gorge. The father, uh, Gene Mobile Hill, well-documented, famous entrepreneur, some good, some bad, you know, not trying to beat him up or anything, but definitely has some convictions of fraud. And if you watch the Action Park documentary, you can kind of see some of the issues. But I worked for him uh, his daughter, Julie, and his, his son, uh, Andy. So three family members all separately, which was really tough. Um, you know, I learned a lot. Gene was probably one of the most interesting characters of my life. So, so far I've, I've met Frank, changed my life. IntraWest came in with a slew of people and stuff that was just inspiring. And then all of a sudden Crystal Springs buys Mountain Creek. And at that point, I'd, I'd already met my wife, now wife, Hallie O'Brien. And Hallie was, you know, she'd just come from Mount Snow because she started the Mount Snow Minute back right before then. And she came to Mountain Creek and she was actually our um, snow reporter and then our PR and, and multimedia manager, I think was the title at the time. So so we, we started to date in that time. And so basically, as Crystal Springs bought the resort, it, it was like a, it was a, it was a tough transition and it was tough because I went from IntraWest who loved 
people and humans and cared about were very aligned with my personal goals in life to Fortress, which was less and it was hard to see the old interest go. But, you know, you kind of wrapped your head around maybe that wasn't sustainable, but even though it, it could be. And then to Crystal Springs, which was people that worked here were kind of like cogs and widgets. And, you know, I remember they took the 401k away from everybody one day, but they didn't mm-hmm. tell anyone. And that was the moment. And I have to give Hallie a ton of credit. So she left and said, I'm starting my own business. I'm becoming an entrepreneur. That was in 2011. She moved to Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. So she went in, she, she, she went out, she jumped in the pool. And then uh, I'm here. I'm a general manager of the resort that I love that I think I'm going to work at forever. My high school friends had bets that I would never leave Mount Creek. I think one, <laughs> one friend had to give another friend a thousand bucks over it. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a pretty, he was pretty confident that I was never going to leave Mount Creek. And uh, I hear about it still all the time. I'm not trying to get some money back now or not. I don't know how that works, but um, so so basically, you know, Hallie left and my brother got married in Brazil and I never had three weeks off in my entire life, right? Because I started working so young. So we're in Brazil and the, the people that I worked for here were very upset that I was gone for so long. And I was on the, you know, the first week of vacation, you disconnect. The second week of vacation, you start to live in a really comfortable spot. The third week of vacation changes your life. And I, and I know most people can't take a three week vacation, but if you haven't, maybe you should because it might change your life. So I'm down in Brazil and Hallie records all of my messages of me basically complaining to her about my job. And she goes, it's time for you to quit. You should quit your job, move to Colorado. And that winter, we design- I designed the Redtail Lodge. You know, I started that design with Frank under Intrawest, but it never got done. Crystal Springs came in, they, they pumped in a bunch of capital. So they actually borrowed a bunch of money, which eventually in the story will come back to help me. But they, they borrowed a bunch of money, built the day lodge. So I, I helped design that day lodge. And then I met this guy by the name of uh, Jeff Beliba, who worked for Burton Snowboards at the time. And now he actually runs our tech company. And, you know, when I met Jeff, he was talking about, hey, there's this thing called train-based, learn, or train-based teaching. It's out at the Burton Academy in North Star. Jake Burton himself, Jake Carpenter has been working on it. We've been out there. It's amazing. The only problem is it has capacity issues. It's an amazing way to teach people snowboard. And my first question was, can you, can you teach people ski? Yeah, you can do ski too. And it's an amazing thing, but we can't get capacity. We can't figure out how to get enough people through it. It's very niche uh, out in North Star. So he flew us out to North Star. We looked at that. This was before I quit. And at Mountain Creek, my last year as the GM here, we implemented terrain-based learning with Burton Snowboard, Snowpark Technologies. A bunch of us got together and came up with a plan. So when Hallie said, you should quit, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And she goes, you're so excited about this getting more people to tr- to come back a second and third time. Like, just start a business doing that. So I quit. <laughs> I had uh, I had uh, I had sixty thousand dollars. I sold my uh, condo that I bought actually from Intrawest at sixty grand. I moved to uh, Vail. So Hallie and I weren't right. We were just still starting to date. So she lived in Boulder. I li- I moved to Vail, Colorado. Um, I didn't have any customers. So my first customer was actually Frank DeBerry. You can see what an impact he's had on my life. Right. He called up and said, wait, you're quitting Mountain Creek? It was hit. I got two phone calls. I got two phone calls the day I quit Mountain Creek. One was from Bill Rock. One was from Frank DeBerry. And, oh, wow. And, uh, and Bill Rock, you know, it was, it was great. He was like, you know, it was kind of the question, like, did you quit or did you get fired? Like, like you know, GMs never quit. I'm like, no, I actually quit. He goes, what are you thinking? Like, <laughs> like it seems like a weird move for a 30 year old to quit. You know, right, right. You're doing pretty good at being young GM. Don't get ahead of yourself. You can't quit yet. And then 
and I and I he still gives me shit for this. And I, you know, he's like, you should come work for Vale. I'm like, yeah, nah. So um, so <laughs> he, he would he would not have been a bad person to follow. But I think it's uh, as he says now, it's kind of worked out. So Frank, I actually became the director of marketing intern at Snowshoe consultant. So I went back to IntroWest when I quit here to help him out. He had had a, um, a change in marketing, needed someone to help get it together. Um, I worked with a guy by the name Ian Arthur, who was the chief marketing officer at the time of IntroWest. And we reorganized, uh, hired the team there, and I did that temporarily. And then I started this business of trying to find a purpose that a ski resort would pay me to come to their resort and design either learning experience, this whole program of how to get people to come back more and increase their conversion. And, you know, I started writing for the NSA Journal, which I'm now a board member of the NSA, which I'm very proud of. I started working with Ski Area Management Magazine. I would travel to resorts. The, the then president of NSA, Michael Berry, would joke like, yeah, if you, if you get Joe a hotel room and a plate of spaghetti, he'll come to your resort and work for free. And um, it, it wasn't untrue. And, and I mean, we had no money. And, you know, Hallie, you know, she was doing really well. So she really helped pay the bills in, in, in the early days of snow operating. And she also did all our marketing was why we look so, so good. People thought we were better than we were because we had the amazing asset of Hallie's talents uh, making us look good from the outside. But I would travel. I went, like I said, I've been to 130 plus 137 ski resorts since 2012. I've worked with the resort teams at, at so many of them on designs and I mean, cool projects. Like I listen to your podcast and when I hear you know, certain people, I think, oh, that was a cool project. I got to work with that, but I got to work with that team and, right. and still, still get to know, to, to, to know all these people. So what happened, it was, you know, I, I just read a book that it's a controversial book, but it's, uh, I, I read it years ago and I had to just listen. I don't really read books. I listen to them. So I listened to it again. I listened to the first few chapters and it was rich dad, poor dad. And, I've been fascinated by how does somebody go from working for a company to owning a company. And when you listen to that book, there's, you know, some, some things that are a little, you know, they make sense, but I think in recent times he's gotten a little aggressive author. But when you really look at the one thing that I think he gets right and wrong is the difference between an asset and a liability. And the one thing I, I won't credit that book for, but it made me think as I was reading the book is the greatest asset that, that I've personally had, was my own credibility and basically credibility and relationships within the industry. And I think that's something that makes the ski industry so special. If, if you're not, we're very good to entrepreneurs. If, if you show up and you really want to do something and I, you know, the list of people who helped me when I became an entrepreneur, Brian Fairbank, you know, absolute legend in the sport, Michael Berry, Art Berry, Houston, Camelback, like, like these people from Mike Salamano up at Killington, like, um, amazing resorts, amazing ability to, to work with them. And, you know, it was the always wanting to deliver on the product a project. So if they hired us, I wanted it to them to say that was a great project. And every resort I get, I got to go and work on a small, you know, you know, we're working with the project teams from marketing director of market or uh, uh, mount operations, uh, retail rental, snow school, and we're, we're doing cool projects where we're not placing lifts, even though Sometimes we'd work with SE Group and, and talk about putting in new lifts and they'd get involved in that more intense engineering. But we were, you know, how does a rental shop, like project like A Basin working on the new rental shop and to get to work with Al and, and Peggy Hiller, like it's such a cool thing to get to know them, right? So that, that process, that credibility led to the New York Times reaching out, 
all these different news things, industry stuff. I've had the luxury of and the great honor to give the keynote speech at almost every industry show, you know, from SIA to OR to to Mountain Technology Symposium to sitting on a keynote panel at NSA to Interski in Bulgaria. So from that, from that, that, you know, hard work and credibility to try to deliver an experience to this great community of ski resorts led to the big snow people reaching out and saying, hey, I read about you in the New York Times and I actually took my kid to go skiing at Whistler Blackhome and I saw this really cool thing at Olympic Station and when I talked <laughs> to the guy there, he said I had to talk to this guy Joe from Jersey. I go, we live in Colorado now, but yeah, cool. What are you doing? I'm, you know, we're, we're the new op and this is when I meet the Garmesians about big snow. So it was this, like quitting my job because I didn't believe in the direction of the company, they didn't believe in people. Following Hallie, who really, you know, led the path as an entrepreneur and, and took the ultimate risk. To people like Frank, to Brian Fairbank, T Tyler Fairbank, who who helped seed us along the way, and, and Burton Snowboards, I, 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 I miss them. They, they really helped us early on by funding us and, uh, you know, basically giving us a little retainer to help go to resorts to help survive. So like I, I literally paid for groceries with the help of Burton Snowboards for, wow. for two years. But then through that, credibility became really exciting projects. So we, we got to be involved in some of the most innovative projects in, in the world from new children's programs to new rental shops to new concepts for base areas. Like, I mean, it's some amazing resorts. Like some of the biggest name resorts, you know, we, we probably worked at all of them. And it's such a cool thing that then people are like, oh, who, who's going to design Big Snow? Oh, we need you guys to do it because you guys are great. And then that led to, why don't you operate it? So we actually leased Big Snow and I'll never forget the moment. They said, okay, we want to work out this lease. We worked out the numbers. The lease is, you know, if you can imagine what the number is in a month. I'll tell you the number. I don't. I don't think it's a huge secret. Um, it's my secret to tell. So I'll tell you. It. So we pay over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a month in rent. Um, so you know, imagine that's more than my my parents' house when I grew up. So I'm signing this lease. I've worked with all the resorts. I have this amazing asset of this credibility and relationships around the industry. But you know, if you know anything about the, the snow operating business, like it's a good business. It's a healthy business. It's not big enough to to do a lease like that. So. They, they kind of fell in love with our dream of what we wanted to do and gave us the lease. And I'll never forget, they said, how much can you put in? It's a, it's a startup. And I said, uh, uh, and they're like, without like leveraging like your parents' house, like how much can you put in? And I'm like, a million dollars. And I'll never forget the looks I got from around the table of all the people on our team going, where the hell are you going to get a million dollars from? <laughs> um, and then... You know, there was a moment where I just say, yeah, so we're going we're to put a million dollars. Because I thought to myself, it's 2016. It's not going to open for the next few years. I can find a million dollars spice then. So we leased Big Snow first. So we have Snow operating, we leased Big Snow. And then we had it. We started Snowcloud actually before all this, but I'll get to that later. Snowcloud really came from the fact that we're working with resorts all over the world on how to make their processes more efficient. And we realized the biggest reason why most of their processes are inefficient is because of technology. So we, we went to all these different people to try to get them to create it. And then we started to realize that, you know, technology is actually the greatest way to change the way the guests can experience a resort and connect with a resort. And, you know, I also fell in love with technology to the point that it's, it's the main focus of, it's the backbone of Big Snow. It's the backbone of Mountain Creek. It's the, it's the backbone of the future of Snow Partners is, is uh, we're really a technology company and 
you know, I love this little quote from Elon Musk, who's basically like, you know, technology is great because it's like modern day magician. You can you can literally create things that didn't exist and you can do things that no one ever thought was possible. And when they see you do it, they go, how'd you do that? And, you know, you've picked up a, a triple player seasons pass here at Mountain Creek or a day ticket. And, you know, you probably have the reaction most people have when they pick up a, a pass at Mountain Creek is they literally look at us like we're crazy. Like, that's it. That's how you do it. <laughs> Like, yep, that's it. And they're like, I remember when we first said we weren't going to mail seasons passes. People were like, you're the dumbest people. How dare you? There's going to be lines. And, and and I remember opening data, like, wait, there's no lines. They figured out this new thing. It's super cool. Um, yeah, it's just the guy standing at the entrance yeah. with the scanner. He scans my uh, QR code on my phone, pass drops out, and you're done. And, and, and Snowcloud next year, so I'll give you a little sneak peek on this. Um, you know, a lot of resorts are going to kiosks. And it's not that I dislike kiosks. I just don't think they're scalable. I don't believe in them because I don't think they're scalable. And it's very European. And, and you know, we're, 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 we're the United States. We're, we're, like, we're like where technology lives and breathes and, and gets developed. So um, next year, when you come to Mountain Creek, you'll encode your own ticket with your own phone. Right last year, on a busy day, we could have basically, you know, let's say we had 100 people working. We had 100 human kiosks with iPhones who could encode tickets. Uh, Mountain Creek on a busy day, the, the 7,500, 8,000 people, we've kind of changed the way we, we sell tickets. So we kind of keep it at that number. So, you know, now the way I look at it is I want to have 8,000 kiosks. <laughs> so I want every person to be able to encode their own ticket with their own phone. But let me just get back to the end of the story. So we... So I, I say we're going to put a million dollars in a big snow. And then right around that time, we're working our tech company, our business around the country. I'm trying to figure out, okay, we're going to open big snow, a bunch of questions of how we're going to do it. And then all of a sudden Mountain Creek, you know, the place that I left in 2012, who had this huge impact on me, still, still kept in contact with all the mountain guys who've been here for over 50 years, goes into bankruptcy. And it went into bankruptcy because that family that I left working for had a minority partner who didn't have control of the business who basically broke up Crystal Springs and Mountain Creek, and he took control of Mountain Creek. And this was in 2015. And he never ran a ski resort, didn't really know anything about the ski business, thought it was something he wanted to try to do. And, you know, Mountain Creek, sometimes people look at Mountain Creek because it's in New Jersey, think it's a small ski resort. And I, I, used to, I used to love to have this conversation in Colorado because I'd, I'd remind people from a year-round visit perspective, it's not far off Keystone, right? So like... Um, so like where my friends come out here, they're like, this is like a real resort. I'm like, yeah, what you, we do 8,000 to 10,000 people on busy day. What do you, what do you think? What, what do you think it was? I, I'm shocked. Yeah. We have a, you have a hotel. Yeah, I know. He, he bought the resort and there, there's an old saying in the wine business that, that works really well in the ski business. It's, um, you know, the best way to make a million dollars in a winery or a ski resort is to start with 10 million. Um, so, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, this, this thing will bite you pretty quick and you have to really understand the business. There's so many distractions. You have to be very disciplined. You have to be focused on core business. You have to really understand the things that can get out of control, like, uh, expenses or seasonal, seasonal variable labor. Like I look at operating a resort as an art form. It's something that, you know, we pride ourselves and we try to be the, the Michelin star chef of how to operate a resort. Like I like to go down to like the, the detail of the second, like. I don't like lines. I want a rental shop with zero lines, like not, not under 20 minutes, none of that crap, no line. So Jeff bought the resort uh, or he took control of the resort. He had a lot of financial problems, ended up going to bankruptcy. And I, you know, this goes back to relationships. Relationships are the greatest thing. The, the human connection, which is why it's in our mission statement, the word connection is, is what makes or breaks most things in the world. How you are to people 
how you take care of people is usually how they'll take care of you in the future. So back when I worked for these people, I really didn't like who were kind of mean to people because I didn't just like the way they treated people. So sometimes I feel bad saying that about them, but they were so mean to so many people. I wrapped my head around. I can say that. So this guy, Jeff, I'd go to dinner with him and I, I formed a good relationship with him. So when he took over, he'd call and say, am I doing this right? Can you help me with this? I read this in Scary Management Magazine. Is there any way you could help me? And what was interesting is when he went to bankruptcy, he called me and he was real upset and his father was sick and, and then unfortunately passed away not long after that. And he didn't like the ski business. He, he was losing a lot of money in the ski business. He'd, he'd increased the price of the season's pass really high, which is the biggest mistake every operator of Mountain Creek has had is, and, and people listening to this not from New Jersey, New York are going to laugh at this, but it's, it's Aspen of, of, of New Jersey, right? Because what happens is people see New York City, they see the glitz and glamour of what, you know, this amazing, the greatest city in the world that, that we're part of down the road is. And they all of a sudden go, that's our clientele. And they start thinking Manhattan and they start trying to replicate Manhattan type things here. And they don't realize that Mountain Creek is a blue collar, upper middle class, middle class, upper middle class. You know, when it's, when it's busy, it's busy, core skier, you know, that New Jersey, New York kind of awesome guest. And as soon as you jack up the price, they're going to disappear by, by a crazy amount. So he'd increase the, the, the prices. Visitation went down. They had a bad winter, uh, two, year, two years in a row. Now, quantify bad. We would have been fine, but you know he made some bad decisions with some of the people he hired with snowmaking, and, and you can get yourself in trouble quickly if you're not paying attention around here because it's you have to really know what you're doing. So he was like, I got to get out of this business. I'm not going to survive. Like I, he, he was to the point where like I physically might not be able to get through if I, if I don't do something. So I literally just said, well, how about I lease the resort from you? And he's like, what do you mean? And uh, I said, I'll lease, lease it. I'll lease the winter operation from you. And I knew the business so well because how long I worked here. So I knew the EBITDA for the winter should have been, you know, around four to five million dollars uh, if I got it back in line just for the winter business, not including food, retail, summer, all that stuff. So it was funny. It's it's like if I ever wrote a book on how to become an entrepreneur, I'd, I'd be like, you know, just throw out a million dollars a bunch and it works. So how much are you going to lease it for? I said a million dollars. And I didn't. I still didn't have this million dollars. I've already now spent twice. Um, but everyone, you know, my credibility was there, so they assumed I had it. So when we structured the deal, because he was in bankruptcy, so to structure this deal, it had to go through bankruptcy court. So luckily, the, Brian Fairbank, who I mentioned earlier, had, had introduced me to his uh, his business partner years before, and and he and and Brian always talked about his partner uh, Joe Donald, one of the wealthiest guys from Boston, and you know he always said that he had this guy next to him called Doctor No, and he said Doctor No was a uh, you know, he's a lawyer and Joe O'Donnell always has a lawyer next to him who's a, a partner friend, a partner in the business. So, and, and early on, I realized that, that was smart. So one of my high school friends is our chief legal counsel now and also a business partner of ours. And he, um, you know, it was, it was great because he has equity in the companies it had since 2014 when we were a little company that didn't have anything. So when we wanted to do the lease of Mountain Creek, we had our own in-house counsel, even though we had no money. So he was able to write the lease and get the lease done. And we basically negotiated that we wouldn't start paying the, the lease payments until uh, we do 200000 in December, 200000 in January, 200000 in February, March, and April. And that would be the million bucks. And we, and we basically negotiated that because of the way it was stretching on that we wouldn't have to start paying expenses till October 1st. So we had the credibility to do it. So no one questioned that 
you know, like the bankruptcy courts in the bank and all the different creditors in the bankruptcy love this because they're like, oh my, you could Google at this time, you could Google who I was and it would look very reputable. They're like, wow, this guy's like an industry expert. Like, and he wants to lease this place and guarantee a million dollars. How this is the best thing that Jeff, this is awesome. Thank you. Let's, let's get this approved. So they approve this thing. First thing we do is we launch season's pass sale. So the year before their pass price started at $399 a pass. Uh, in the month of September, I don't know the number they sold, but they, they brought in $67,000 in sales in the month of September. The year we signed our lease was in early September 2017. We released our season's pass product. Now we also, you know, we had Hallie, right? We had Hugh. We had all these great resources that we've grown. So we we're a small team. But, you know, Hallie did this like kickoff video, which was basically like, we're back. We get it. Oh, and I didn't mention the social media channels, unfortunately for, for Jeff, he's still a minority partner now, but the former uh, owner, you know, his problem was like his social media, like he didn't understand the market skiers were beating the crap out of him. You know, you don't want to be a bad quarterback for the Giants. And he was unfortunately <laughs> in the hot seat and he was throwing a, a bunch of interceptions and and the crowd here was letting him have it good, right? So right. when we when we launched, hey, Snow Operating, here's who we are. Here, like we made sure we hit. You know, we we kind of say, let's give stake to the lions. We put so much stake to the lions that they were like, holy shit, Mount Creek's back, <laughs> and and they got and instantly the response we got was great. And then we hit them with, and passes are two hundred twenty nine dollars, and we sold one point two million dollars in passes in the month of September prior to having to pay a single expense um, at the resort. And we basically covered our entire rent of the whole mountain in the month of September. And from there, you know, basically what happened is we just went all in and said, let's run this business the best it could be run. Let's give our core guests, the skier, the snowboarder, the train park, uh, racing programs, beginner, learn to, Let's let's just take this off the charts. Let's let's do a great job and let's try to prove that all these things that we've been working on with resorts around the world, now all of a sudden it's the hot seat. Now it's like you better deliver. You know, if you're getting paid to consult to help design experience at some of the best resorts in the world, you better damn run a good one when you own one. So it was kind of stressful, but we we learned a lot. There were some things we couldn't instantly fix because we didn't have the technology stuff because I couldn't fully fund it at that point going back and not having any money. But what happened was Mountain Creek just kicked ass. We brought the market back. We actually had a very good winter. We had a good winter the year after. And then basically they continued to be in bankruptcy. The way bankruptcy works is when a company goes in bankruptcy, like over 90% of them end up going to a 363 sale. So my business partners today, our partners, the Kaufmans, who were the sole owners back then, you know, they're getting courted peak resorts. Like there's a good chance. Um, we were days away from Mountain Creek currently being owned by Vail Resorts today. And the reason is was Peak Resorts was really close to doing a deal. And in order for that to happen, the Kaufmans would have ended up basically taking huge baths. So we had kind of the inside track. We were able to, we were here operating it. We formed the relationship with the Kaufmans and we were able to reorganize and do a deal. So we basically purchased our equity in the resort, a controlling majority interest, right to exit bankruptcy. And we did that by basically canceling the lease that we got 
and then growing cash over two years and investing it all back into the deal, pay down all the creditors. And we came out of bankruptcy in March of 2020. I, I, that date is famous for lots of reasons. <laughs> wow. So I worked, worked our ass off. The whole team really worked hard to get this thing across the finish line. At that point, Vail had bought Peak Resort. So if Peak would have bought Mount Creek, then Vail would have bought Peak, then this would have been a Vail Resort, which would have been interesting. But proximity to the city, I, I don't know. That would, it would have been a hard, that would have been a hard one to figure out for them. But lucky for us that we don't have to worry about that. So then we bought the resort in March 2020. And, you know, there was a moment where it's like, okay, how are we going to, we're going to have the next few months are going to be super tight. And then COVID happened and shut down everything. And, you know, it's almost like we, we had such a tight runway to be able to make this work. And we were really confident six months out, but we were not very confident for the first, for March to July of 2020, I was nervous. We, we had to really be tight and, and land this plane perfectly. And the whole team, we had fired up and they were all ready to go full transparency. And then COVID happened. We got through it. PPP certainly saved our ass. And we've come out of it. And today, you know, oh, I, I missed a big piece. Sorry, the money I got, the million dollars to put into Big Snow, which ended up being $3 million, I got from operating Mountain Creek. So that worked itself out. The Mountain Creek million dollars worked itself out because of the way we structured the deal. And then buying Mountain Creek was the money we made from Mountain Creek. So people ask me all the time, how do you buy a ski resort with no money? And, and the, the greatest, the only way I explain it is you have to be really lucky. You have to have a lot of credibility and actually know what you're doing. And you have to build really good, strong relationships and build credibility over a very long time because you never know when those, you know, this crazy guy that I used to go to dinner with on Wednesday nights called Jeff Kaufman ended up having one of the biggest impacts on, on the future trajectory of Snow Partners, which is pretty freaking awesome, right? And now today at Mountain Creek, we, this year we, we hit over, you know, when we came out of bankruptcy, this is all public record stuff. We had $26 million in debt. The first year out of bankruptcy, we paid that down to $16 million. We had to refinance the mortgage with MT Bank. We refinanced that. Our payments out of bankruptcy were $300,000 a month for debt service. We've now refinanced that at $16 million at $92,000 a month. Um, we've increased the EBITDA. Prior to us leasing Mountain Creek, it was losing money and making under a million dollars EBITDA. This year, we just have our consecutive two years back to back of over two million, uh, ten million dollars of EBITDA, wow, and you know thirty six million in revenue. So, so overall, so Mountain Creek, we've paid down the debt, we've stabilized the business, we've gotten the most meaningful place to work, and we're continuing to invest in our people, and we've started to put a lot of effort into infrastructure, and start to really figure out how to put love into this business because the problem with an unstable ski resort, it's the worst thing in the world is it doesn't get the capital it needs. And, you know, ski resorts have to be run efficiently. They have to be run correctly because, you know, a lot of people don't understand how hard it is to run a ski resort. Don't realize that these, these things are capital beasts and it takes a lot of work to, to create something special in a market with the weather as hard as it is in New Jersey. You have to understand pricing of passes. You have to understand, the market, how you're going to sell them different products. You have to know how to make snow when everything's going against you. Humidity is really high. The wind's too much. It, it rains for a week. All these different things. How do you give steak to the lions when you, you only have chopped meat? So, uh, you know, you got to figure out how to keep a, a community engaged and, and excited about you. And at the same time, you have to do all that while making enough money to be able to put it back into the business. And so far, we, we've had a really great two years. The community, we have a real ski culture here in New Jersey. I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of our locals. 
they used to beat up on the resort like crazy. And listen, they, they give us give us crap. If we if we make a mistake, we hear it louder than anyone could hear it. But for the most part, they're they're really great to us. We we have a great guest base. And most importantly, is because we've all come together and we have such an amazing team, we've been able to stabilize this business and now we're able to invest in the business. So we're putting a lot of money into our water park. And, and Stuart, I know something that you're you're very passionate about and have asked me a lot is, uh, you know, what about a chairlift? And we, we have engaged uh, with SE Group on a master plan of the resort. We have some really cool things uh, coming down the pipe, but from a skier services standpoint, I think one of the biggest, it, it, it's kind of weird. I have, you know, we talk about complicated relationships. The relationship I have with the Cabriolet at Mountain Creek is a really <laughs> complicated one. Um, for I think people, you're not alone. No, and for people who are in the ski in the Mountain Creek community, they know this lift well. It's uh, on social media called the Crappio. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody likes it, and it was actually I was out in in, in Boyne, and I think it was Stephen Kircher was saying, you know, I asked a, a really silly question, and it kind of blew my mind when I when I saw the the Ram Charger Eight. I remember being shocked that it wasn't as long as I thought it would be. And I'm like, it's a pretty short lift. And I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a thousand feet of vertical. No one wants to take their skis on and off for a thousand feet of vertical. So you need a high capacity lift, but no one wants to take their ski out, skis on and off. So, you know, going back to when was put in the cabriolet, you know, they thought the village was going to be at the top of the mountain. So that's why they did it. Mountain Creek does 110 weddings a year now. For mountain biking, the cabriolet is fantastic. For the water park passenger, the cabriolet is fantastic. For the skier, the cabriolet stinks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like I, I hate it. Like and, and people sometimes like, how can you say you hate like your chairlift? I just do. I, I ski at South more than I ski at Vernon. Uh, other than split, like literally this year, I, I resulted in I just hiked the mountain to get on Vernon more because I don't like taking my my skis off every run. Right. So yeah, I'm on South ninety percent of the time. Yeah. So and and I look at it and say, you know, we're mostly beginners, so that's good. But um, we've come to this realization that a way to increase just the desire for more people to want to, to, to ski at Mount, at Mount Creek Vernon Base, which is our, our biggest area, we need a chairlift. And right now we only have a triple chair. So SE Group came in. We looked at all the different spots of where we would put a lift. Right now, you know, this is not finalized. So, you know, I wouldn't say this is 100% the location, but we're heavily leaning towards where the triple chair was or basically replacing the triple chair. Uh, our intention is to do that with a eight pack bubble chairlift. That's not confirmed yet. I might go back on that. Um, I know the prices. I know the prices. What I don't know is the complexities of the topography and what might change in the prices as we get deal with some of the realities of, of, of uh, you know, you need a lot more width in the lift line and all that stuff. So definitely a, a, a bubble six of some sort or an eight pack. You know, right now we're looking at the timing. So there's a few things, you know, working against against us. You know, the big players are buying a lot of lifts. Yep. Um, so we have Doppelmeyer coming down here. So we've engineering has already begun. We have Doppelmeyer coming down to go through and a few other lift manufacturers to look at the different options that are out there. We're, we're really committed to it. You know, the question is, is it 2023, 24? We don't know that yet. There, there might be things out of our control that we can't dictate. But if you look at the biggest, the biggest question is when you have this reoccurring capital and you look at the EBITDA percentage. So we have a sustained EBITDA over $10 million. You could value the resort 
you know, easily at 70 to $90 million. And at that point, if we only have $16 million in debt, we've done a really good job on the business side to earn us the right to, to put in some things. And the question is, we have to put in things that'll give us the biggest impact. And to me, going back to our amazing guest base here in New York, New Jersey, which I love it here. I, I don't want to live in a place where people pretend to be nice to me. I, I want them to, to let me know when I'm not doing a good job. It keeps me honest and it keeps me motivated. And, you know, I, I really look at myself as like a coach or an owner of a football team in this market. And it's cool to own Mountain Creek because you have such an intense community that to care about it, but they deserve the best and they deserve a lift. You know, in my opinion, it should be a uh, eight pack. You know, I was listening to Carl talk about it at Mount High. Absolutely love Carl, love Mount High done some great projects with him and you know it was interesting hearing him talk about the same thing because i think there's a lot of people in other markets like why would they need that there and it's like he's looking at that la market which you know is similar to our market of you know we deserve the best and i think it, it could be something really cool do you think that that would that you would still run the cabriolet as a redundant lift or the eight pack would just be the alpha lift yeah, it, it would become Alpha Lift, but the the Cabriolet would stay and probably run on weekends and holidays and any peak times. And right now, the Cabriolet, because of the way our business is set up, we do so many summer visits and so many weddings and, and mountain biking. You know, that thing runs, I think, 11 months a year. And because we have night skiing, it runs in the winter a lot more than most lifts. So it, it gets hours on that lift more than most. So Part of us putting in another chair would be to really put in a workhorse that all winter can operate, and that would always be on. And that's going to be the primary lift because people aren't going to want to have as a backup. A, a nice chair at Vernon Base that's consistent high speed would really change the way this mountain feels. And there's one other lift that that's in our, our near future, which would be, and, and again, going back to connections and community, that, like this year hiking, you know, I was on ski patrol for 12 years. And this year I, I went up and hung out with the patrollers. And one of the patrol leaders, his name's Gary. You know, one day we're just there having coffee, you know, after a hike talking. And he's like, you know what you need to do? You need to put the galactic chair back. I'm like, what the hell is the galactic chair? He's, you know, he's been here for you know, 30 something, 40 years. I, I don't want to underestimate it, but in around, he's been here for a long time. And he's like, yeah, back in uh, Vernon Valley, Great Gorge, we had this chair that went from the top of Horizon to the top of Granite. And it basically made South so Sojourn, uh, Southern Sojourn, the, so the connecting trail, a beginner trail that then you could go back up to Vernon when you got to the bottom. And it also made Osprey, the, the trail that goes from Granite to Horizon, that is an amazing beginner trail, a green trail. And Mountain Creek is, if, if you took a helicopter photo of Mountain Creek on a busy day, you would see all of the people on Horizon, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, if we could increase the amount of people on that, that's, that's stuff that SE Group is looking at as well for us. And, and also maybe bringing back early is maybe this winter where we're going to work hard on trying to see if we could do it is Granite View. Uh, it's the trail that goes from the, the connection trail back, yep, back down to Doe Run on Granite. That's a great run that, you know, then all of a sudden an intermediate can just basically session the granite section on repeat without having to deal with the Charlie's run, which is a little, little tough for an intermediate. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at an old trail map now from 1989, that lift um, that you're referring to, that connector lift is referred to as the great gorge connection on this old map that I'm looking at. Um, and that was a double chair. Are, are you thinking it would be in the same line and what kind of chair do you have in mind there? Yeah, we, we haven't got to that point. Like my thought would be, the naive thought would be, it would be great because, you know, one of the things that the Kaufmans did before we bought the resort was they put like, 
crazy amount, over like a million and a half dollars into the triple chair. And they, they put a lot of length of life on it. So we're like, okay, we're going to rip out this chair that just got this huge investment. You know, can we relocate it? But, you know, Doppelmeyer, everyone laughs at you because when, when, when you want to replace, move a chairlift, most of the cost is the construction and the placement of towers and, and all of that stuff. Obviously, the steel and the prices of steel, those prices have gone up. But if you're going to move a lift, you're better off getting a new lift. But then the problem is the cap, you know, right now, I don't know what it would look like, but I think it would have to be it wouldn't be a double chair. It would be, it would be some sort of quad. The question is, it's probably a fixed quad, if I had a guess. Even though you know, it's got a really small length, the, thing, the reason you might be swayed to go to a detachable is just it's so much easier to load for a beginner. At the same time, it's, it's mid-mountain, and you know, maybe you can go uh, fixed because just the reality is that's money I could spend somewhere else. So if I can save a few million bucks there, I'd probably put it to, to maybe some spots that have more impact. You know, Mountain Creek is really big, and I think that most people don't realize it's two miles wide. And there's a lot of room in there that's not developed, and it, it's hard to explain. It's very rocky. It looks like the Flintstones, right? When you're looking into the forest, there's giant boulders everywhere. So before I ask you this question, I want you to know I, I appreciate how difficult it is to make new trails on this mountain. However, you do have some great fall lines, especially on South is an expansion of the trail network feasible? Is it something you've considered as you look to grow capacity uphill? Yeah, it's, it is. But I think a lot of the areas we're focusing on expanding are opening up stuff that used to be open that's now closed. There's a trail that it would take a lot of work for us to, to work with the uh, HOA at the Great Gorge Condos, but recently there's been some some opportunities for us to open up a conversation with them. There's a trail called Route 80. So Route 80 used to go from Granite back to the, the Triple Chair, and because the Triple Chair doesn't open often, they stopped making snow under the Triple Chair. So we lost a few trails there. So from Zero G to Garden State down to Triple is is no longer a trail. I actually, even forget what that trail was called. A uh, Triple Bound. No, no, Triple Bound is other trail. Yeah, it's a, I grew up skiing that trail, but I forgot forgot the name. So a lot of those trails and like Granite View that I mentioned, we certainly want to bring those back online. I think the risk we have is we know who we are, we know who we're not, and we and we try to balance over like the world kind of tells us what our right size is, and we have to deal with the climate, we have to deal with snowmaking, and and at the end of the day, there's there's two factors. One is just the sh- sheer amount of of snowmaking opportunities we have. So, you know, getting the mound 100% open is something that we strive for to do as quick as possible. You know, some of the things that people don't know about Mountain Creek, which is really cool and, and people are really jealous of, is we have all the lakes for snowmaking on top of the mountain. So when we literally turn a valve, we have full pressure at the base. So there's days where we can make snow. We, we have a lot of good water capacity, but there is limits to that. And there is an allocation that we're allowed to use. So you know, we have to, we're close to 200 million gallons is our, is our peak of where we'd want to be for, for snowmaking. Last year, probably hit around 175 million gallons of water. So every time we have that equation, the question becomes, well, if we create more trails, that's more snow. And that also takes away from the base we have. So we have certain trails that because we have to protect our business, um, we make substantially deeper than other trails. So, you know, something that most people don't have to deal with at other resorts, unless you're in the mid Atlantic or a climate like ours. And, and in the mid Atlantic, we're probably in the hardest 
section of the client. Like we're, we're really coastal compared to most resorts. So we have to do a lot of humidity and, and, and stuff like that is in a year we get, I think last year before we got six inches of snow, natural snowfall. So we were hundred percent open. So we, we make snow on every trail and some trails we put, you know, there's six feet of snow on the whole trail and there's stockpiles throughout it because we've kind of done the math to say we need to at any moment in time randomly even though it's not it says it's not going to happen we have to be ready for 60 degrees and rain for five days you can never get complacent like there's been days where you're sitting in mid-december and you look at the long-range forecast and you see uh round the clock snowmaking for a week straight and everyone's giving each other high fives our team here is trained really well never to do that we do not give high fives till we close for the season because at any moment and and this year's, you know, hats off to them for really embracing this this way of looking at the business. Like we go all in, we play to the end and we don't stop. And, you know, this year on holiday week, you know, we were down to inches of snow and a few feet to be able to get from top to bottom width of a trail. And we were able to bounce back. And that's that was not the way the long range forecast said weeks before that. So for us, so so to answer your question, expanding trails for me are one, you know, it's really hard to build. They're expensive to build. But two is just, I don't want to build something that I can either risk having the consistency of being open. Like we're, we're getting really good at having over 100 days of skiing in Mountain Creek every year. We're, we're proud of that. You know, we're not going to be the earliest open, obviously. We're not going to be the latest open, uh, obviously. But um, we, can, we can be open for, you know, a good three-month stretch with a really good offering. And I've tried to get as many trails open as possible. And you know, at the end of the day, there's only so much water allocation to go around. So opening up some of the stuff that's been in the past, but cutting new trails is is not super high on the priority list at the moment. You've done a really good job with the long season. There were a couple years when you closed in April. In 2019, you actually opened on November 16th. Is that something you're committed to long term, stretch the season as long as Mother Nature cooperates? Absolutely. And, and you know, going back to snowmaking, snow, you know, people always talk about snowmaking and snowmaking capacity, but it's... Uh, you know, I've learned this from traveling to all these great resorts, Seven Springs out in, in Pittsburgh. I remember I went there and I was talking to their owner and their their the, their director of Mount Ops, uh, Joel Rareco, and um, at the time their former owner, Bob Nutting. And, you know, I'm looking at their trails at, at Seven Springs and they're up there with like the, the, the ride-on lawnmower that you'd have at your house. And I'm like, this is how you mow your trails? They're like, it's like a golf course. <laughs> you know, for people who aren't familiar with the complications of running a ski resort is our summers are all about erosion control. Storms come in, you know, high storms and thunderstorms and hurricanes. Unfortunately, we do get hurricanes up here. Uh, a lot of water in a mountain do not mix. And you have to figure out how to get that erosion control off the mountain and into the right spots. And if you're not constantly working on water bars and trying to figure it out, it gets pretty gnarly quick. So we opened on on uh, November sixteenth, and, and the reason why is, is, you know, it's hats off to the snowmakers. Snowmakers, you know, and we have an amazing snowmaking team here. And Big Al Laser has been here since they cut the trail, so he's worked here now fifty two years, and he's an amazing guy, and he's just absolutely amazing. I've learned so much from him. But you know, when we opened on November sixteenth, the snowmakers get the party, right? They're the ones who get all the credit. The the people working on trail maintenance and the ground crew is the reason we opened that early all summer. They focused on getting that trail. They, they did great 
erosion mitigation. They did great maintenance of the water bars and they planted great seed. They kept the grass down. And so the sugar chair that we opened that year at that date, we're, you know, we're, we're taking the, the book from, from Seven Springs, uh, resorts like that of let's make that a golf course, because if you can make it golf course type grade, and then you can put a bunch of fan guns. And as soon as you get the, the temperature, you can open. Yeah, we'll, we'll open as soon as you can. Well, Joe, you've certainly changed the way that Mountain Creek operates, the way it feels. You've done a great job and brought back your childhood ski area. Are there more outdoor ski areas in Snow Partners' future? Good, good question. There are not. And I'm sure there's some people that are going to be shocked by that because there's a lot of speculation of, of things we can do. And, and I'll be super honest with the way our executive team talks about it. I'm, I'm an efficiency expert. And efficiency experts, the, the former uh, CEO of GE, Jack Welsh, from years ago, has this famous quote that we literally have all over the Snow Partners offices called variation is evil. And what that essentially means is when you have a ton of variation, when you're not focused on core business, when you have a bunch of different moving parts, it's almost impossible to get things under control from a process perspective, like scientifically, right? And so what happens is, so for us, I look at Mountain Creek. Mountain Creek's a passion project. This is a place that I grew up. It's a community of people I, I know. We run this like a true mom and pop resort, right? This is a resort that's near and dear to our heart. It's not corporate. It's got a real sense of community. It is quicksand. So what I mean by quicksand is if, if you let it, Mountain Creek can take over your life. I could work at Mountain Creek seven days a week, 24 hours a day for the next 100 years and not be happy with, with the way <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's nonstop needs love and attention. And it's because there's so much variation built in the business versus our technology business, which can have a massive impact and is extremely scalable versus future big snows, which are extremely replicatable, efficient, and also very little variation. So we can build prototypes and almost operate them the same exact way. So for me, you know, when I look at some of the big players out there, you know, everyone goes, everyone always thinks of us and they try to put us in a box. I remember when I started snow operating, everyone said, so you're competing with PSA. I go, no, they're going to be our best partner. And everyone laughed at me and then ends up years later, PSA is one of our best partners and they've been for many, many years. And, and, you know, people are always like, oh, you bought a ski resort. Next thing you're going to do, buy another ski resort. That's what everyone does. And when you think of innovative and being disruptive in a space and trying to do things and, and really think of things from a different perspective. The obvious thing for us to do would be to buy another ski resort because, you know, we have the, the leverage at this point. We have the credibility and we have the leverage and we, and we could probably easily get the funds to do so. We've gone down that road. We, we looked at a pretty prominent resort. We put a bid in on it. Other people were willing to pay a lot more for it. I'm very thankful for that because at the time it seemed right. But now I just see it as a distraction because... I don't ever want to throw stones at the big players, right? There's there's some big players and they mean well and they do they do great stuff. I don't think any company now, and I'm going to say this. I know I know this people will not like what I said say here, but I don't think anyone can run a massive network of resorts well. And I mean that with peace and love. You can run it like Applebee's, maybe maybe if you think Applebee's is good food, then maybe you think people can run a network of resorts really good, but if you look at Applebee's and you look at how much work it takes to get them to be consistent across the network, they have to dumb down the product to make it so simple. And it's so uncomplex 
that literally they're taking stuff out of a bag and microwaving it. That's the way Applebee's gets your food to look the same way every time. Sorry, Applebee's. But if, if you're a resort, resorts don't work that way. Resorts need, they have a lot of variation and they almost deserve the variation. The snowmaking in New Jersey is different than the snowmaking in Pennsylvania, which is different than the snowmaking in New Hampshire. The staffing is different in Jersey than it is there. The, how you ramp up, ramp down, the insurance is different. The skier visits are different. The type of skier is different. The conditions are different. Everything is so different. And so for me, just looking at it saying, I don't think being someone who fashions themselves as my life's work is resort operations and, and I do it, I don't see that anyone can do it well. I, I just don't think it's possible. Was Jay Peak the large resort that you looked at? Yeah, that, that was that, that was the one, and, and that you know I think uh, I think they spilled the beans on that in, the, in an article somewhere I read. I always love that one. I always love to bring that one up to Steve Wright, who's another <laughs> great friend, and 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 you know Jay Jay deserves a lot of accolades that they have. That you know if there was another resort that we'd ever want to be involved with, the reason we were interested there was because of Steve, because of the community. So community is uh, to us is so important, and Jay. Jay's got something very special going on. So, so my only hope is whatever happens with Jay, I know it won't be in our world, but whatever happens with it, I hope it still stays Jay because Jay is a special, special gem. So if I, if I go back to your comments on the large ski companies, have you thought about putting Mountain Creek or your big snow network onto any of these multi-mountain passes? If it's not an Epic or Icon pass, an indie pass, is that something you would ever be interested in? Um, so complicated question. So yes and no, because of our location. And, and I understand why a lot of people do this. It make in today's world, it makes sense. We, because of our location, like years ago, we were on the max pass back in, uh, it was before it, when I wasn't here. So when I wasn't here, they were on max pass. That was a just complete train wreck for Mountain Creek because really? Mountain Creek sold the most max passes, but had the least, uh, utilizations. Because basically what happens is everyone buys the Mountain Creek Pass and then they buy the add-on, but then no one goes from Boston to Mountain Creek. It just doesn't make sense. So right. we were, you know, we saw, we sell 60,000 pre-sold products in Mountain Creek, which is a pretty phenomenal number for, for the resort size we are. So w- the way I look at it is we're the gateway to the to people. Our, our greatest asset is the 20 million people we have within an hour. So this massive population, what we do, and you may have seen us do this, we, we, we don't make a huge deal about it, but we'll be doing it again soon, is when the Epic Pass sale is going to be done, we promote it on our channels. When, when the Icon Pass is going to have an increase, we, we, promote, we, we promote all of the passes as, as we can, because I look at it as you know someone who lives in Bergen County, New Jersey, or Morris County, or Sussex County, New Jersey, or, or New York. And they want to come ski on the weekend nights or the weekday nights, and they want to come and take weekend trips to Vermont. Most of our pass holders have two passes. They have the Mountain Creek Pass, which is priced as a no-brainer, but then they also have an Epic or an Icon Pass. And so, mm-hmm. once we play with that formula, I don't think it'll I don't think it'll serve us very well, but it might serve them well. Which you know we don't we don't need to do that. I don't see that ever happening. But with that said, I'm a big fan of not looking at the things from an obvious lens. We have had great conversations and we're trying to work something out with Icon who, you know, Altera has been a good friend of ours. And, and, and that's a cool thing about our industry real quick when we talk about the big players. Like Bill Rock is a friend. He's coming to visit Mountain Creek. We've had the whole Altera executive team visit Big Snow. We've had Boyne Resort's whole executive team visit us at Big Snow. We've had 
20 resort partners come out and, and check out Big Snow or Mountain Creek and, and look at some of the fun stuff we're playing with. And it's uh, it's such a cool community. And that's where through this, you can get, you can kind of talk about kind of ideas and how to do things. So at Big Snow, we're talking about like a, like a takeover month, like what I would love to do. So my dream would be to have like the, in the spring, have like May, April and May are icon month. And the whole place kind of gets, I don't know if you saw what we did with Big Snow. We, we did something with Club Med where they did like a Club Med kind of takeover for, for 15 days. And, and that really worked well for us, which is kind of like, here's Big Snow. Here's, here's all the guests that come to Big Snow and you guys can kind of come. And it would be really cool to have the, the icon pass holders be able to come use a few sessions. Just, just check it out. Give some value to them give some value to us, give a marketing incentive to, to icons, really more of a marketing plan for them to do. But traditional like us on the pass, Mountain Creek, no. Big Snow, yes, but differently than it's been placed at other places. That's really interesting, especially as you start to scale this thing out. So before I let you go here, Joe, I, I, I want to zoom back out and look at your story. So you didn't do well in school. You, you had this narrative kind of thrust upon you and it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, it sounds like you didn't feel great about yourself. Mm-hmm. And you find this family at Mountain Creek, work there, learn a lot, make some connections in a very creative and determined way, build this big company, come back, buy the resort that you grew up at. And now you're talking about multiplying this indoor ski snow concept across the United States where the potential... The money, the market is there. Just no one's had the imagination and the willpower to do it yet. As you look back on your life and where you are, and, and by the way, you're still a pretty young guy. I want to make that point to the listeners. Uh, that you, your, your story still has plenty of chapters left. But just talk about that notion of kind of defying your narrative and setting a new path for your life that really surpasses the expectations of people around you or not to say you didn't have any supporters, but the the kind of track you were on and being able to transcend that and make your own story and and do something different and do something really inspiring like you've done in, in creating this big company. Um, yeah, well, 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 thank you for that. And I, I think to reflect back on that and, and, and you nailed it there is is for me, you know, the, the when I look back on, on the experience, I just look at it and say, you know, listen, traditional school pre high like in high school and, and before that was you know it didn't give me what i needed to excel it just wasn't my thing like i skied i snowboarded but then getting a job at a resort like this had such purpose and meaningfulness in my life that you know when i when i think of of the legacy of what we're trying to do at snow partners you know you hear me talk about our mission statement a lot and i, and I usually say when i say the mission statement i hear a lot of ceos talk about their mission statement but i mean our mission statement, when I get talking about it with our team, I, I get to tears sometimes because it's it's so meaningful to, to what we're trying to do. So when we talk about enhancing lives, I go back to that experience of giving people the ability to perform, be part of something, have these experiences like, you know, this morning hiking the mountain with the two GMs at Mountain Creek to start the day. It's just such an inspiring way to start the day and talk about business and the way we build our company and give back to not just people that work here, the whole community. So to your point is when I think back to what this has done 
for us and where we're headed in the future, our mission statement will always be human focused. We're not reacting to the market. Like you've seen the last year, a lot of people, you know, all of a sudden reacting because a lot of people can't find people to work. They're kind of uh, reactive instead of proactive. So I can tell you because of my background, because of the story, because of all the people that have helped me along the way, because of the connections, because of the guests that I've gotten to meet, the people I've gotten to spend time on snow with, the people that I've traveled to their resorts, people that have hired us to help us work at their resorts. Like all of this together makes me realize that the greatest thing that we can do as a company is to really enhance the lives of the people that we get to work with every day, our guests that get to come here, and our partners by building lasting connections. And you know, I, I mean that it's an honor to work in the ski business because, you know, some people, you know, one of the things that doesn't fly with me is when people say, well, it's not brain surgery. Well, I'm not sure if that's a dig at the craft or the skill, or I don't know what that means, but what I remind them is, you know, it's not brain surgery and brain surgery is real serious. But when someone passes away and you look at pictures of their life, you usually don't find pictures of them at their office. You sometimes do. You don't, you don't find pictures of them in the hospital. You see pictures of them with their friends and their family and they're connecting. And if they're a skier or snowboarder, you usually see a picture of them at a resort. And that thought that we get to deliver a product where we employ thousands of people. And you know, one of the things that I think is so inspiring about the people that we get to employ is a lot of them, because of the dense population of New Jersey and Vernon, we hire a lot of youth and we have a lot of young people. And I love having the conversation with 18 to 22-year-olds who don't know that the best job in their life is happening right now because they're, they're not living in the present. They're living in the future. They're living in the, I'm going to go to law school, then I'm going to do this. And then we started this new recruiting campaign in the last year where we're basically bringing people 20 years from now back to say, that was the best job I ever had. Don't let it go by too quick. And you realize when I go back to my favorite jobs, not that I don't love my job now, but when I was 16 to 22 years old working at a resort and everyone listening, if, if anyone's worked at a resort, you know what I'm saying. They were the best times of your life. So the fact that we get to be part of that, we get to create that, and then we get to share this experience with guests, we are in, like COVID showed it to us, when people can't interact with people, when people can't go outside and have experiences, it's not good for, for, for anybody. It's not good for mental health. It's not good for your lifestyle. And man, do we have an important place in society to be able to deliver skiing and snowboarding to the people that our whole industry gets to, and, and hopefully in the future, We'll open that access up to people who never thought they could try it and think about the opportunities we'll have. And I've said this many times, the last 20 years, people talk about how crazy the ski industry has been or the consolidation or different past products. And, you know, I, if people don't see that the next 10 years is going to be the wildest ride, it's an open road. It's, you know, ski pioneering is not done. You know, there's a lot of people in consolidation and trying to fight over the piece of the pie. We can make the pie a lot bigger. We can make a lot more pies. And I, I think we can do something that the founders of this industry would be proud of look, look, looking back. Such a great perspective, Joe. I, one of the ways that your company gives back is, or I, actually, I don't know if this is directly related to your company or a separate entity, the Joe P. Hessian Foundation, uh, which is in honor of your father. Tell us about your father and about the Joe P. Hessian Foundation and its mission. 
Yeah. Well, thanks so much for bringing it up. So, so my father, Joe, Joe P. Hessian, Joseph P. Hessian, he's still alive, which is awesome. So I get to still work with my dad. He's actually the chairman of the board of, 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 the, of this. So my dad is a recovering alcoholic and drug user. He's been sober for 47 years. Amazing. Which is just awesome. So he's actually quit drinking prior to me being alive. I'm, I'm 41. So he, uh, you know, pretty inspiring. He then stopped drinking. He became a drug and alcohol counselor. He spent his whole life working with people through, you know, addiction and recovery and and helping them find recovery and helping them. So when I talk about enhancing life, you know, I come from a family who in this in this type of business and pretty inspiring. He won, you know, drug and alcohol counselor of the year in New York State uh, when I was a teenager and, and really worked really hard at it. So his 70th birthday in honor of him, um, my brother and I and, and Hallie and, and my sister-in-law gifted him a foundation in his name. It's the Joseph P. Hessian Foundation, and its purpose is to help combat a lot of the issues you see now in opioid overdoses, drug abuse, all types of substance abuse. So we actually work, uh, we raise money. So, you know, in the town of Vernon, we, we actually give $199 seasons passes to anyone that lives in Vernon, New Jersey. So our community. And in order to unlock that pass, you have to come to our Uller Fest where you have to spend $20 as an entrance fee just to get your $199 pass. So it's still, you still save money. A hundred percent of that $20 goes to the foundation and that foundation employs someone full-time in the school district here to work with kids on, takes the top kids. So this goes back to the story I told about not doing well in school. It works with the top percentage of kids. So it has 10 kids from the top performers, 10 kids from the middle, and 10 kids who are the lowest performers. And it brings them together into a leadership school. And we actually get to work with them at the resort. Um, we also give money to the PAL, which works with, with the lo- local youth. So in every every one of our resorts, so Mountain Creek, Big Snow, hopefully future Big Snows, down the road, our charitable wing from the beginning will always be the Joseph P. Hessian Foundation. And with the sole purpose of raising money using our assets and then giving 100% of that money back to the community to help people understand the realities of substance abuse, addiction, and, and, and hopefully save, uh, save lives. It's a tremendous cause. If folks want to contribute, how can they do that? They, uh, you know, Hugh is working on a website for that. But right now, if you go to mountaincreek.com, we'll put up a product. If you go to, to buy like lift ticket, there's a spot where you can actually just buy a product there. Or just stay tuned. That hessianfoundation.com is going to be up soon with an ability to contribute. We, we really appreciate it. And uh, we just got our, our year-end report from the Center for Prevention in Sussex County and they're doing amazing work and to just be, be a small part of that funding to help them. They really are changing kids' lives, which is, uh, which is inspiring. Sounds like a terrific program. So I, I hate to end on a down note here, Joe, but the last thing I want to ask you about today uh, is your, is Snow Partners chief financial officer, your lifelong friend, Eric Tlatelpa, who passed away earlier this month after a two year battle with pancreatic cancer. Tell us about Eric and how you remember him. Yeah, Eric, we, we lost him just a week and a half ago. We actually had his repass at Mountain Creek last Thursday night. Eric is it w- was fantastic. He leaves behind an amazing wife, family, and two young kids. You know, he's someone that, you know, it's, it's a great example. He, he worked really hard, went through school, went through college, went through an MBA program, 
uh, was working in track to be a CFO in Wall Street. On the Wall Street side of things, he lived in Connecticut, was working in Stanford, Connecticut at a big uh, financial institution. And then got, you know, he got what nobody wants to hear, especially at such a young age that he had pancreatic cancer. And, you know, this is someone who I've known for a long time. He's just a joy, joy to be around, uh, always funny, the most polite. You know, my mom was always like, he was always the, the, the high Mrs. Hessian, refused to call her by her first name, even as we've gotten older. And everyone who met him was just like the, the nicest guy. And we, we had an opening right after his diagnosis. You know, we, we, we're really into um, um, meditation. And uh, my brother and I, we, we spend a lot of time working on how we perceive the world and how we can give back in certain ways. And, and Eric, when he got sick, you know, he was looking at all these different alternative therapies. And my brother spent a tremendous amount of time with him and you know, there's some, something when you look at meditation, you know, people say either come to this in a time of peace and love, which is what I hope most people do, because it can really get yourself in a great spot. Even something as simple as a breathing exercise. These are all things that we actually do at, at Snow Op, Snow Partners at all of our companies. But Eric was meditating with my brother, looked at it and said, you know, I'm not doing, you know, I'm going to beat pancreatic cancer. And I, wa- I want to be a CFO and I want to do something different with my life. And we, we actually had the opening. So he took this amazing leap during this time and he was on the high, and this is what I want people to know better. He was on the strongest dose of chemo you could be on. And for two years, everyone around him didn't even know he was sick. He dealt with it in such an amazing way, was so strong, left such a legacy with, with our team here. He'll be greatly missed. We'll never forget him. And he taught us a lot about how to treat people, how to be humble, polite, just a really class act every way you could should shake it and you know it's it's, it's a huge loss for us he, he was a uh, he was a really big part of the team and it certainly will be hard to go on without him but uh, he would want us to to continue and what's really cool is when you talk about the future big snows all the financial planning and all of the original documentation which was the springboard to make that happen was his work so he he lo- he, he really left it not only a lasting impact on all of us but hopefully, as this comes to fruition, he will be a piece of something that that will give back to the industry and hopefully skiers and snowboarders all over the world with his uh, amazing legacy. Well, it sounds like a tremendous man and a tremendous legacy. And I'm very sorry to hear that. I send my condolences to the entire team for that, Joe. Um, I, you know, I've I've eaten your whole day here. I uh, I know we only scheduled an hour. I appreciate how generous you've been with your time. What you've built is really amazing. I, I think that the story of snow operating or snow partners rather is just beginning. I, uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future as this thing grows. And, uh, and I thank you very much for your time today. Stuart, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I really enjoy listening to the podcast and thanks so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be here in the storm. That's Joe Hessian. CEO of Snow Partners. I don't even know what to say. There are a couple guys that when I talk to them, it's pretty obvious that they don't play like anyone else and they don't think like anyone else. And they are really very unconcerned with how anything's been done in the past because they are too busy making the future. John Schaefer, owner of Berkshire East and Catamount is like that. And I'm not sure if there's anyone else other than Joe that's operating on that wavelength. 
Look, there are some good, charismatic, imaginative, highly effective leaders in this industry, and many that I deeply admire. So this is not throwing shade at anyone else, but Joe is something special, as you've seen. So thank you very much for that, Joe. I know a lot of people are picking their jaws up off the floor after hearing that. There are so many times he could have given up on any part of that mission, that dream, but he just keeps building and building and building. Trust me, Creek has changed over the past several years, and if Joe can scale Big Snow like he thinks he can, he is going to change more than one ski resort. He is going to rearrange the entire American ski industry. Thank you all for listening. I had to reschedule Altera CEO Rusty Gregory to next week, but that one is well worth waiting for, as you know. Also next week, we will hear from Jonathan Davis, general manager of Perfect North Slopes in Indiana. Then we'll have a conversation the week after that with one I've been trying to get since day one, Gore Mountain General Manager Bone Base and lots, lots more booked already through the end of 2022. To get those directly to your inbox the moment they're live, sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid versions of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive those podcasts three days early. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.